Hi everybody, just a quick editor's note up front. For those of you expecting to hear a discussion on Sam Raimi's Multiverse of Madness, well, sorry. We decided not to go that direction. After picking the movie, Colin decided he didn't feel like discussing it. Those of you who have been listening to us for a while know that Colin really enjoys doing this from time to time. It's a tradition he started way back in one of our early episodes when he selected True Romance, and as of today, we have yet to ever review that movie. And Marcus pretty much hates all things MCU anyway, so I'm sure that didn't help in us not choosing to go forward with an MCU movie. So for today's pod, I actually invited my old friend and Halloween enthusiast Bill Tiller to talk about the Halloween franchise. We're both huge fans of the original Carpenter film, and over the years have spent countless hours discussing and debating all of the good and the bad contained within the Halloween franchise. As of late, most of the conversation has been Bill trying to get me to buy into his theories for how the film Halloween ends, ends, I guess, the new David Gordon Green trilogy. So we spent a decent amount of time talking about the franchise up front during the podcast, how the two previous films in the trilogy support Bill's theory, so we do talk about Halloween Kills quite a bit. If you want to jump to Bill's very specific guesses as to what happens in Halloween Ends, that's around the hour and 26 minute mark of the pod. So if you love the Halloween franchise, this pod is for you. If you've never seen a Halloween movie or maybe you've only seen the original, then a lot of this might not be terribly relevant, but you still get to bathe in the glory of two horror movie dorks overanalyzing what has been uh, really a ludicrous franchise over the years. But for some reason, it still kind of commands our attention and wraps us in and we end up having a lot of conversation and we end up having fun while we're talking. If you'd like to check out other Halloween films in our back catalog, we do have full podcasts for three previous films in the series, Rob Zombie's remake, Halloween 2018, and Halloween Kills. One common theme for each of those podcasts was Marks and Colin being amused by my depth of knowledge about small random moments in each of the films. So for example, I'd say, oh, this reminds me of the gas station in Halloween 4, or I think they might be doing a callback to the two deputies in Halloween 5. Basically, what I usually got from Colin and Marcus was blank stares. Like, "Uh, okay, sure, whatever. Well, after talking to Bill, I guess I know how they feel, because when it comes to Halloween minutia, Bill blows me out of the water. So uh, Bill, thanks for making me feel better about myself. I truly appreciate it. I guess I'll close by saying happy Halloween a little early, Uh, by the way. The Halloween Ends trailer actually dropped while this episode was being edited, so we may have to come back with a short trailer reaction pod so Bill can assess some of his predictions. He was already backpedaling on a couple points, or maybe it energized him to think about some new ideas. Uh, And as you will hear on the pod, he already has plenty of wacky theories. Anyways, hope you enjoy the conversation. Now on to the show. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. everybody we'd love to get your feedback you can post a review wherever you found this podcast find us on twitter at real dmc or send us a message at feedback at realdmc.com. if you send us some feedback we may include it in our listener feedback section and you'll hear it on the show thank you for listening and now on to the episode hey everybody welcome to the real dmc podcast dmc stands for dave marks and colin Although today it's more the Real DB podcast because I am joined by a special guest 
Mr. Bill Tiller. <laughs> and Bill Tiller's name has showed up on our podcast before. But Bill, maybe just a quick introduction. Who are you, Bill? Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks for calling me a special guest. I feel special for being on it. I'm excited. Uh, who am I? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I've been your friend for, God, dude, how long have we known each other? Since 1995? Maybe 96, 97, around there. Yeah, yeah. a long time. You and I used to work at LucasArts, so I am a uh, artist and game designer, art director, uh, game writer, I guess, too, and game producer, um, but mostly an illustrator. Um, I graduated in 1992 from California Institute of the Arts Character Animation Program, uh, so I had like a pretty good animation portfolio, and that got me the job at LucasArts, so I initially worked on The Dig, and then I worked on Curse of Gown. A lot of people loved that game, and then eventually left and started forming my own company called Automoon Entertainment. I guess we can talk about that later. And Dave came on board and helped me write my first game, which was awesome. Yes, Bill actually gave me my first professional writing job. So, Bill, thank you for doing that. Thank you for coming in and making the game funny. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least I participated. Yeah, we both tried. We both tried to make it funny, and some people thought it was, and some people um, thought it wasn't as funny as it could be. So we'll give it another shot. We'll give it another shot with the sequel. So we'll learn and uh, make it better. Yes, and aside from being uh, long-term friends and former work colleagues, we also have a shared passion for the movie Halloween and the overall Halloween franchise. Yes. I would estimate that Bill and I have probably spent... <laughs> Maybe 40 or 50 hours worth of time, maybe over the past three or four years, talking and debating Halloween. Yes. I wouldn't have talked about it that much with you if my wife would let me talk to her about it. So I need you to be able to talk about Halloween. My kids and my family will not let me talk about it anymore. Thank you, Dave. I'm just an outlet for your Halloween obsession, yes. is what you're saying? Yes. So I want to I thank you or I would annoy the shit out of my family. So my family thanks you too. One of the reasons we're here today is Bill has been bending my ear with some theories about what's going to happen with the film Halloween Ends. That's going to be really the major focus of the pod today. Bill has a lot of speculation and I'm sure plenty of straight up wacky theories, uh, but Bill is going to lay them out for us. And what he's really trying to do is effectively predict the end of the new Halloween trilogy. The end of Ends. We actually saw Halloween Kills together in the theater not that long ago. Yep. And uh, we had probably different opinions about that, but we thought it would just be fun to use this podcast to talk about kind of Halloween in general, and then allow Bill to go off on his crazy tangents about what's going to happen with Halloween ends. That's what we're going to do here today. All right. Well, I want to hear yours too. Once I lay out the facts, you may, you may come up with a different a different interpretation of what, what we're seeing, which I'm cool with. I, I, I don't for sure know what's going to happen. I'm just trying to piece together the little tidbits of foreshadowing and, you know, seeds that they planted in the previous movies, which actually... A lot of it is uh, seeds planted in the very first 1978 movie, believe it or not. I think they really dissected the hell out of that movie and wanted to build on what John Carpenter did. So it'll be interesting to go back and review that movie, too, and see where it kind of uh, branched out into this trilogy. Well, maybe we can start there just in terms of uh, maybe go back and give your Halloween origin story. Oh, sure. Why is this movie impactful to you? How has it uh, affected you over the course of your life? And why are we still watching these movies 12 movies in? Yeah, I watched it again yesterday. It's still still a great movie. You already told uh, everybody your traumatized viewing of it, right, on television? I'll do a recap of that after you go. Oh, okay. I did uh, lay it out pretty extensively in one of our other pods, but uh, I'll, I'll give a recap. You go first. Yeah, well, like you, I did see it on television for the first time in 1981. So I saw it like a week before Halloween. Halloween's kind of special for me and the holiday because my birthday is the next day. So all the time when I was a kid, 
we would have my birthday basically on Halloween. So people, kids would trick or treat, and then come over to my house, and then we have cake, more more sugar, cake and ice cream, and presents. But to me, it was like Christmas before Christmas. Does that make sense? Just like all good parents, my mom used the TV to help watch me, you know, help raise me. And the only thing that was usually on in the afternoon was um, endless amount of creature feature movies. That combined with my birthday being on Halloween and watching horror films, I'm just totally 100% into, um, you know, into the holiday and into Halloween. So I heard about Halloween through word of mouth. Apparently, it didn't have much advertising. My sister told me about it. She's like, oh, I want to go see it. She asked my mom if she'd go see it. And she was like 13 at the time. She was close to being at the right age to see it. And I was like, well, there's a movie about Halloween? She's like, yeah, it's supposed to be super scary and gory. I'm like, oh, man. Oh, I'm intrigued. You know, the year after, it was on television. It was like a week before Halloween. The funny thing is, is where I live is outside a small little town in Illinois. And it <laughs> is a suburban town. It's called Bartlett, Illinois. It was a town that kind of grew out of a train station in the middle of a bunch of cornfields. Well, we lived just kind of outside of it in the woods. Closest neighbor was probably maybe 100 yards away. But behind us was nothing but woods, a little tiny junkyard. And behind that even was a Girl Scout camp. And that was all woods and hills and cabins. And Was there a large institute for the criminally insane in your neighborhood as well? Almost. Almost. I lived out in the creepy dark woods, Dave. <laughs> Explains a few things. Yeah, yeah. So as a kid who's into D&D and Star Wars and stuff, that was great. It was great to have that 300 acres worth of woods and a Girl Scout camp and places to explore. But I was having my birthday party the a week after I saw the movie. So I watched the movie, the TV movie, and it, you know, of course it scared the shit out of me. And I was like, oh my God, I wish I had not seen that. I really wish I hadn't seen it. Because what I had planned for my birthday was we were 14. We weren't going to trick or treat anymore. We were too old. But I was big into playing Dungeons and Dragons, so we decided to go LARPing. For my birthday, before it was called LARPing. I dressed up like a cool elf and I had a great cloak and everything. And you know, all my friends are over around a campfire. But what we did is split into two groups. One group went to the uh, Girl Scout camp and the other group stayed behind. We'd wait 20 minutes and then we'd try and see if we could sneak into the Girl Scout camp. Halloween night, the moon was full. And I, like an idiot, decided, hey, I'm an, I'm an elf. I'm going to be like a little stealthy ranger. I'm going to go ahead of the party into the woods, steep, dark woods. And it turns out uh, I should not have done that, Dave. Because I went out in the woods all by myself. The moonlight's rising through the woods. And I see fucking Michael Myers everywhere. Everywhere I look, I hear a noise. And I'm like, oh, fuck, he's over there. No, oh, fuck, he's over there. No, 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 dude, you're an elf. You're Lord of the Rings elf. You're, you're, you know, you're like Elrond. <laughs> Nope, nope, fuck it, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, I immediately ran back. Scared the shit out of me. So I was like, nah, I'm going to stay with my group. No, I know what happens when you wander off on Halloween. That was basically my week that uh, traumatized me. Seeing Michael Myers in the woods on Halloween night and then seeing the movie, that was enough. Because it takes place in Illinois. It takes place in a small town. Before I realized there were palm trees in the background, it looked like Bartlett, Illinois. So it was just a scary night because I'd seen Halloween the week before. Yeah. So. That's how I got traumatized by Halloween. Been a fan ever since. So we do have a podcast that we dedicated to the 2018 version of Halloween. And I tell my Halloween story in detail there. So you can listen to it. But in general, I was nine at the time and NBC was going to be showing Halloween on TV. I think it was maybe two weeks before the release of Halloween 2. So they had you know, set up this deal so that they were going to show it on TV with the idea of trying to get people excited and then draw people to the sequel that was coming out. Oh, okay. And I had talked to my parents about, hey, I really want to watch this movie. 
my dad probably just went to bed. My mom kind of let me, my, my parents <laughs> just kind of, my parents uh, were not really fierce regulators when it came to media content. So <laughs> that might also explain a few things about me in general. There you go. So anyways, I sat down and I watched the movie and I watched it with all the lights off. That was your big mistake right there. <laughs> At the age of nine, it just scared the shit out of me. The movie just terrified me. And to this day, for me personally, it's still the scariest movie ever made. But then the situation got a little worse because... I decided I was so excited that I wanted to see the sequel. And so I talked to a friend of mine and there was a theater that that had a long hallway where you had individual theaters that you could then go into. And so we bought a ticket for the movie that was next to Halloween 2 with the idea we were going to walk past that one and then walk into the Halloween 2 theater. And I did that and my friend chickened out. And so I got into Halloween 2 and I was sitting there and I didn't want to leave because I thought if, if I stepped out the door, I was going to get busted and pulled out. And so I was expecting him to come in and he never did. And so I just sat there and I watched Halloween 2 by myself. <laughs> in the dark again. Yeah, I think it would have been 10, actually. I guess I was 10 at the time. Just two weeks after seeing Halloween for the first time on TV? <laughs> double dose. And so I got a double dose of Halloween in two weeks at a very young age. And it really stuck with me, let me say that. So I'm, I have had a few... I've had the occasional uh, nightmare over the years. Mm -hmm. and It's a horror franchise that I remain excited about to this day. And it's one of those things yeah. that for me personally is part of my fun history in my youth because I was a big horror film junkie when I was growing up and a reader as well. So I read Stephen King and you know Whitley Stryber, and Dean Coons, all those books. I sought out and tried to find every weird horror movie that I could. And the 80s happened to be a great decade for horror. So I was well satiated in that regard. Yes, grew up a horror movie junkie. Even subscribed to Fangoria magazine, wow. which I would read regularly. So That really twisted you. But bottom line for me is to this day, if I'm dragging the garbage cans out and it's a couple days before Halloween and I see some leaves rustling around the ground, yeah, I think a little bit about Michael Myers. <laughs> I'll admit that. Yeah, you double-dosed yourself. You have made some long-standing threats about doing things on Halloween. Threats. So would you like to talk about that for a second? It's not a threat. It's a gift, Dave. It's like a ticket to an amusement park, right? You go to an amusement park to ride a roller coaster and be scared, right? But you know you're safe. So it's going to be just mm -hmm. like that. Michael's going to come up to your house, scare you a little bit. You're safe. You're not really going to get killed. And it's sort of my gift to you for Halloween. I think very specifically what you said is you were going to have your... How tall is your son? Is he 6'4"? Yeah, he's four? about 6'6", six, six, I think. He's about as big as the Rob Zombie Michael Myers now at this point. It's going to be hard to find an overall that'll fit him, a coverall. Yes, but I have warned you that if that happens, I'm going to put this on the pod for public record. I'm not responsible for my actions because my sanity might just click off for a second and then <laughs> I don't want your son to get hurt. Uh, okay. All right. Well, we'll keep him at a safe distance. Other than just don't throw the bat. You know, he could stay out of bat swinging range. Just don't, just don't throw it at him and he'll be all right. I was going to say, so what, what do I do to you every Halloween? You, uh, you warn me and by showing me a picture of the bat you have next to your door. <laughs> Correct. Yes. I take a picture of the baseball bat I have leaning against next to my door, and then I text you and I say, please don't come over. Dave is not fucking around, man. He's really going to take that bat. <laughs> All right, well, maybe I shouldn't send my son. Maybe I should hire somebody to do it or, or get somebody else, <laughs> you know, somebody I don't care and love. How about just not do it? That, that's a, maybe a better approach. Oh, I love scaring people, though, Dave. That's a, that's a tough one. And plus, it'll be a great story you can tell in the future, right? You can have it on your podcast. Not worth the trade-off, I'm telling you right now. No. Uh, all right. It is expensive to get a good mask. I mean, I do have one that's decent mask. It's kind of got a rotten and starting to fall apart, but maybe it makes it cooler. All right, Dave. Maybe I won't do it. And then maybe I will. I'll, you know. Maybe I talked you out of yeah. it. In, in which case, it was uh, worth having you on the pod, Bill. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep it ambivalent as, a, as to what's, uh, what's going to happen or not. We'll see. I got a few other ideas, but I'm not going to share them with you. 
Yeah, no, no, don't. You don't. No. <laughs> My imagination's going. I think about it every year. I start uh, adding more <laughs> layers on top of it. It's going to be good, Dave. It's going to be good. No, 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 no. All right. Come on, you're entitled to a good scare, Dave. Oh, I didn't mean to startle you. That's all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Especially you. Just in terms of Halloween in general, the franchise, the mm-hmm. the Michael Myers character, why is it so effective or why it has, has it been such a lasting legacy of a franchise? Well, I think two things, really. It's really geared toward teenagers and the guilt they feel, at least in the 70s, for having premarital sex. A lot more people were against that back then, and the religion was definitely pushing hard against that. You were Protestant or Catholic or even Muslim, you were not supposed to be doing that. And you do it anyway because nature. And so you felt guilty about it. So I think Carpenter made a movie to go after teenagers because they're the main market for horror movies, and they have been forever. I think number two is, it's kind of two things. It's American horror movie. The origins of it are 100% American. So you think about Halloween, you think, uh, oh, skeletons, Dracula, Frankenstein. That's all British. That's all Eastern Europe. Even like the Headless Horseman. I know Tim Burton was saying that Headless Horseman is an American myth, but there's Headless Horseman in Europe and England, you know, like in Harry Potter, they have the Headless Hunt. I think this is a, a truly American myth, and that's why I love it so much. And I think John Carpenter took a look at what is America right now. What is his movie audiences? It's going to the it's going to the mall, going to the movies. He goes, what if I make where you live scary? What if I remind you that you're not safe? You know, you think you've moved out of the suburbs. Because remember in the 70s, crime in the early 70s was really out of control. In the cities in particular. Yeah, it was, it was terrible. I mean, cities used to be in the 50s and early 60s. You, you saw Mad Men. It was awesome. It's a great place. And, and in the late 90s, it's now an awesome place to live. It's like an adult Disneyland. You go to New York City, it's awesome. It's too expensive, but it's awesome. In the 70s, it was horrible. Just watch that movie Wolfen. Remember that movie Wolfen? Yeah. They show, like, the worst section of New York. It's just a hellscape. So everybody got the hell out, and they went to the suburbs thinking they're safe. And uh, Taylor, the graveyard owner in the movie, he says something like this happens in every town. And he's right, you know. Somebody goes crazy out in the suburbs every once in a while. And I think John Carpenter just kind of fed into that. So I think those are two reasons it's um, so good. And the villain. The villain is great because he's kind of the opposite of all other villains. All other villains tended to have agendas or reasons that drive them i mean i do think michael has reasons but they're very hard to discern and hard to suss out so i think that makes it even scarier and that that's a hard thing to do but you know john carpenter i think is a genius and he's able to figure it out so i think those are the basic reasons why i think halloween is, is so great and everybody wants a sequel and wants to see it again and with that feeling again of being scared that i'm gonna give to you dave one of these halloweens <laughs> that feeling no, no, no. of yeah. being scared by michael your point about the motive in the original film, you really don't understand why this guy is doing what he's doing. You know, he's out there, he's lurking around. The mystery of it, which was somewhat undone or complicated after Carpenter drank a six-pack and decided (laughs) to make Laurie his sister in in Halloween 2. And it's well known that he was suffering from writer's block effectively Mm -hmm. and just said, okay, shit, let's just do this. But if you take that piece of the mythology away and the fact that there's just this guy out there wearing a mask lurking around, you don't know what he's doing or why he's there or why he's coming after you, and it could be anybody, that is just a great way to generate tension when it comes to creating a villain, right? Because yeah. if someone has a motive, you understand their motive, maybe you understand how you can stop them. Right. This guy, he really was the boogeyman. Yeah, he's just a, a suburban teenager. He's 18, right, in the movie? Wasn't he actually 21? And I think he was 21. Was he 21? Michael Myers is 21. Because Ben Tramer was, was 18 after he, when he got mowed down in <laughs> okay. Halloween 2. That's funny. That's right. 
not a coffin. It's not a zombie. It's not crazed killers stalking you know the streets of London in the fog. It's uh, it's like in your home. It's near the mall, near your high school. I think uh, I think yeah. that was genius. I just think that the character design and the actions mm-hmm. are incredible. The subtle movements are, is the stuff that it really makes him scary. The first thing I'd say is the mask itself, that blank face where he's taking all these actions and doing these things and hurting people, but it's just effectively a blank stare. And just the coloration of the mask itself lends itself to some really effective photography. The scene in the original Halloween where Jamie Lee Curtis discovers the bodies and then she comes out into the hallway, you see the slowly emerging mask, the white, it becomes visible. Just the way that it sort of fades in, I think is terrifying. I know Dean Kundi was the uh, director of photography and they emphasized a lot of small lighting tricks to specifically use the white mask to great effect. Yeah, I think the mask is great because I think it falls into the uncanny valley. You know, it's like when you make a video game and you try to make somebody look realistic, but you can't and they just look fake, you know, even though they're kind of real. Yeah. Or you see those like robots that are supposed to look like a, a Japanese woman and then they have the real woman sitting next to the, the fake woman. And the fake woman's just creepy as hell. And I think that's one of the, the things that makes um, his mask so creepy. Because it is just a regular dude. It's Captain Kirk. It's William Shatner. William Shatner with the eye holes expanded slightly. Yeah, yeah. And then the paleness is basically somebody drained of blood. So it seems a little more like a corpse. A little bit like a skull. You know, you can't see his eyes. So they're a little bit skull-like. So, yeah, I, I think it's really effective. There's two things I think inspired it. If y'all notice, in Halloween 78... In Lori's room, she has a poster of James Ensor in it. Do you recall this? No, I don't. Okay. Well, look. She's got a little raggedy doll next to it. And then right, you know, this is right when she sees Michael in the backyard among the sheets. Remind me to go back to sheets later. Um, okay. It's a visual motif. So I looked into James Ensor. This is a guy who kind of got shat on. It's about 150 years ago. He was a painter in, in, in Belgium. And he got shot on by everybody. They hated him, especially politicians. They thought he was dangerous. And so he'd do these endless pictures of politicians wearing masks because he thought they were lying sons of bitches in real life. But behind that mask, they were corrupted and horrible people. And he would show them in horrible ways. He was a good painter, but he would draw them in like distorted, almost childlike drawings. And they were just endless amount of creepy faces and masks. And a lot of them don't have eyes. Clearly, they put it on there for a reason. I always feel like... Most of the time, directors put stuff in a movie for an actual reason. Most people probably don't watch the movie and go, who's James Ensor? But the intellectual in the group you know, might go, oh my god, I know who that is. Oh, that mask we just saw. Oh, oh, that makes sense. They're connected. People, they wear masks, and underneath, they can be evil, and they can be corrupted. So most people won't get it. And I think Green is trying to copy him, jumping ahead to the trilogy. I think Green is trying to do that, too, visually drop in little hints and seeds of what's going on. The other thing I think influenced him, and I could be wrong, I can't find a direct link, but four years before, there was a TV show called um, The Night Stalker. You ever see that with uh, Darren McGavin? I'm familiar with it. Funny thing is, it was actually written by the guy who did The Sopranos. Oh, David Chase? Yeah, he wrote uh, for uh, Night Stalker. Night Stalker is great. It's a Monster of the Week show. It's probably one of the first Monster of the Week live action shows. But one of the monsters in one week was a artificial intelligent robot. Initially, when you see him, he's got this kind of electronic face, but he's got a human body. It's obviously a guy in a costume. But he wants to be human. He puts on a navy blue jacket and navy blue uh, pants that are like the exact same color as Michael Myers, overalls, coveralls. He starts to mold a face with white clay over his electronics. And it looks a little melted, but the eyes are black and it's pure white. Uh, He has no hair, but he's kind of bald. And he's super strong and he busts in the door 
but as he's fighting people and moving around, he looks like a robot, especially coming down the stairs. And then these military guys jump on him, and he's throwing them around left and right. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's just like Michael Myers. And I looked up the episode, and it's four years before. And I know he said he looked at a robot from Westworld. And ironically, the guy who played the robot in that actually worked in Westworld. So they must have liked his robot acting and, and uh, got him on the TV show or something. So there's like this little connection. He hasn't said anything, but I, I just feel like it's kind of possibly one of the inspirations. I just like finding these connections, but it may not be a real connection. You know what I mean? I don't have any proof to back it up. To expand on that, I do think that the, the manner, the physicality of Michael Myers is one of the things that makes him so effective. Yeah. One is obviously the slow walk. And it, it's always terrifying if you can't get away from somebody who's walking at three miles an hour. <laughs> it's always confusing as to why you can't, but we'll just skip past that. It's called editing teleportation. That's what it's called, Dave. <laughs> The slow, methodical approach and the fact that it's, you know, he's slowly coming for you and you can't get away regardless. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what you're going to do. Right. He's going to find you. That's really effective. And then, of course, there are a few famous moments, probably the most well-known one or the, what has influenced Myers and his physicality is the head tilt, right? So the very famous head tilt. Myers comes out in the original and picks up Bob and sticks him to the wall using a knife. Then there's this brief moment where he just looks at the body and then he tilts his head. Mm -hmm. And apparently... When Nick Castle was doing that, John Carpenter said, oh, just try something. And so he just tried it. So it wasn't as if it was uh, planned out very specifically. But the end result of that moment is just somehow terrifying. Yeah. And it plays a little bit to the Michael Myers character as well, because mm -hmm. he's a little bit of a, of a jokester, a trickster. There's a little bit of whimsy there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you see when he, a little bit later in the original, when he puts on the sheet mm -hmm. and he goes and he finds Linda. They also reference it in several other films and even the Halloween 2008 version. Big homage to Myers' creative side because at one point he cuts out eye holes on, and puts a ghost costume on somebody in that movie. So they were definitely referencing mm -hmm, that. So mm -hmm. the fact that he has some weird kind of childlike yeah. or playfulness or there's some weirdness there, it actually makes him more disturbing, quite honestly. I think you hit it right there. And that's the thing I've been looking at. And that's, I think, the big theme that is going through the Green Trilogy and John Carpenter's movie, Halloween 1978, is that Michael is still a six-year-old kid. He still has six-year-old kid personality inside him, if you can say personality. So it's kind of like he's corrupted, he's this monster, but his origins, the base of his personality, is still a six-year-old. And I think that's what they were showing in that movie, because... He went and gets the grave. He wants to recreate that night. He dresses people up like a kid would play with dolls. And they say that about psychopaths. They just look at people as objects. They don't think of them as actual human beings. And so I think he's treating the people he kills as like objects. And, and his only reference throughout his entire life is when he was six year old. He was a kid. He's playing with toys. And uh, that's what I think that head tilt was about. He was like, oh, that's interesting. Cool. I made this kind of neat art project. Every time I see the movie and I see something that kind of indicates he's still kind of a six-year-old in his mentality, uh, I kind of write it down. But you see that all the time. He, Like in uh, Halloween uh, Kills, that drone flies in, right? Hits the bathroom. What does he do? He picks it up and he throws it back at him. It's like he's playing with them. They threw it to him. He threw it back. It's almost like a game of catch. Yeah. If you remember the kids, they were like, oh, we're playing hide-and-go-seek with this guy. And Michael's is playing hide-and-go-seek, except for the 13-year-olds, which I'll get back to that, too. They just show that all the time. And that's why he cuts holes in the in the sheets and puts them over the babysitter or does it to himself. He's sort of playing with... Uh, was that Linda? Is her name Linda? PJ Souls is Linda. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's, he's trying to dress up like Bob, puts his glasses on, and pretending he's Bob, and he's wearing a sheet. 
because he's got this fetish for sheets. Like I mentioned before, he's got this thing with sheets. Yeah, he's he's going over to play Bob with her. But the only way he knows how to interact with people is just to kill them. That's the corrupt part of him. And getting back to the sheets thing is that you see the sheets all the time. You see in the uh, very beginning, the movie in the point of view, he goes upstairs and he looks over at the bed first and he sees the sheets are all ruffled. That whole sequence is him imprinting these images and these actions are imprinting on his, his psyche and he's recreating them later when he's 21. So you see the sheet motif, like he's hiding among the sheets. He puts a sheet over his head. He keeps looking at the sheets. It's a subtle way to indicate that he's either traumatized by sex or he's sexually repressed. Keeps going back to the sheet thing. And they even did it in Halloween 18. I think, I think Green picked up on that in the movie and decided, hey, I'm going to do that again because that'll, that'll give a call back to the very first movie and it kind of fits his personality. Hmm. That, that's my rant on sheets. I never thought about sheets in Halloween, so... Yeah, I know. I'm not going to look at them the same way again. There you go. Yeah, one last thing to add just in general. I do think that the franchise overall benefits, obviously, from the first movie, and in particular, it's about tension and suspense. Mm -hmm. Because that's the one thing that is lacking in most every other film. There are little moments and elements in each of their films, but... This idea of generating true tension and suspense. I mean, when you go back and look at the original Halloween, it's not a gore fest. No. Very, very little blood. And, and what you see is just more after the fact, a few drops here and there. So it's, it's not a huge slasher movie. Interesting, by the way, that Carpenter was the one that drove Halloween 2 in the direction to be more of a gore film than a suspense film. But I do think that the stalking in particular, so the sequences in the beginning of Halloween where... Laurie sees Myers just next to the hedge, or obviously you, you just referenced it in terms of when she's looking out the window and sees him down by the sheets. When Annie, for example, is out in the laundry room and you see the shape just outside the door because you can see the mask, it's just super creepy. <laughs> I mean, the act of stalking itself and how they portray it, particularly the original, it just makes it so effective because you're always wondering, oh, is someone over there? Or, you know, mm -hmm. could there be somebody standing in the dark over there? It's just a really effective way to generate tension. And that tension suspense is what makes the first movie so amazing. And it's honestly why all the other films in comparison suffer because they just can't recreate it and you'll never be able to recreate it. That's why I was like, I don't think they should have made sequels. <laughs> and John Carpenter doesn't think they should have made sequels either. You're never going to get that again. Once it's done the first time, it, you can't recreate it because it's always going to be the second time. It only works as a first time thing, you know, the stalking. You learn what he's like, but when you see it the second time, I've seen this before, let's do something new. Yeah. And that's why there wasn't that much, I don't think, in the two movies from the Green Trilogy. Because they're like, yeah, we can't recreate that. Everybody knows that. So we got to go in a different direction. I think the stalking is kind of inspired by that movie, um, Peeping Tom. Have you ever heard of that movie, Peeping Tom? Yeah, or Black Christmas, I guess, is the other one that gets yeah, referenced as well. Yeah, exactly. In the book, they really emphasize the sexual nature of Michael and his repression. So he's stalking these women because he was traumatized but intrigued at the same time by watching his sister make out with her boyfriend and knowing that they were having sex, but not actually watching them have sex through the window. I think he felt two things. One, he felt repulsed by it because he's a young kid and seeing your sister act that way who's older and they shouldn't be acting that way. You get kind of mad. You're like, no, you should be a good girl. Mom's going to get mad. We've gone to church. You're not supposed to act that way. So he's, he's a little bit mad. He sort of represents Protestant repression and the anger of the church. He does not like the fact that his sister is, you know, having sex at that age. And she's also being I think this was also the inspiration for Friday the 13th. She's being a horrible babysitter. She's making out with her boyfriend. 
while she's leaving her brother just to wander around trick or treat. You know, she's supposed to be watching him. And... It's like leaving a kid who can't swim that well to uh, yeah. go out in Crystal Lake and then drown. Exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, he's sort of intrigued by it, kind of turned on by it, as much as a six-year-old can. But he doesn't understand what's going on either. He's he's confused. He's angry. He's intrigued. He doesn't know how to deal with these feelings. At least in the 78 version, there's too much for him. And he's like, I'm going to do something about it. this is wrong. I'm going I'm to stop this. That's why he goes for the knife. But at the same time, he's going for the knife. And what's a knife, right? It's a phallic symbol, a mixture of both sexual interest as well as just anger and embarrassment and just feeling she's morally horrible and I must do something about this. This is wrong because he's mad at his sister. The other thing that was interesting is he puts on the mask before he does it. And I think the reason he does is because for a few moments there, and I think it was supposed to be more, the boyfriend and her make out on the couch and he's wearing a mask. And so Michael sees this and, oh, that's how you make out. That's how you do this. He puts on a mask. And he's wearing a Halloween costume. So these to him become fetishes, right? So that's why when he's older, he has to go get a mask, right? He doesn't have to wear a mask. Nobody wears a mask to go kill people anymore, right? Unless they're bank robbers and they're trying to cover their face and their identity. He's not doing that. He's trying to get into that character that he created that night in order to deal with his sexual repression. So he puts on the mask and he goes up and kills her. Then they take the mask off and he doesn't know what to do. He just goes, you know... Catatonic? Yeah, or fugue state, if that's the correct term. And his whole life, as Loomis says, is is recreating that night. He's so traumatized by it, by him being a killer and by him being turned on by it and being mad at his sister for having premarital sex or teenagers having premarital sex. Uh, So when he comes back, he is trying to recreate what happened that night. Obviously, he goes and gets the grave. He's trying to recreate her, recreate his sister. And I guess maybe that's why he goes after Annie. It's Annie, right? Yeah. Yeah, he goes after Annie first. He doesn't go after Lori. Even though he's been stalking Lori all day, he goes right to Annie, which is interesting. Knowing that we are both big fans of the, certainly the original film, I think we both would consider it a masterpiece. Yeah. However, as the series has evolved, I think the level of quality has been, <laughs> it wasn't a steady decline, but it was, uh, it's been up and down, and there have been some interesting films. I'm just curious to have a quick conversation in terms of what is it you think has not worked in the franchise, and maybe we can each nominate one point, and I will go for the first one, which is, starting in Halloween 5, they introduced this character, the man in black, who kind of came out of nowhere, and <laughs> we weren't sure what his motivations were. At the end, he shoots up a police station and kidnaps Michael and takes him away. And then when you get to Halloween 6, which is, I think, Paul Rudd's first film, maybe, or it has a kind of a hilarious Paul Rudd performance in it. Mm -hmm. But they try to then associate Michael Myers and the Michael Myers mythology with this druidic nonsense and star (laughs) alignment and the thorn symbol. And for me personally, all that stuff just doesn't work. I mean, as soon as you try to make him some sort of a mythological figure based on Celtic mythology or whatever... I just think it loses me, and, and I think it loses the effectiveness because I think that, for the most part, Myers is scary because he could be the, the guy down the street who just decided to lose his shit and put a mask on to start wandering around. <laughs> yeah. like, that's what makes him scary. I am not a fan of any of the druid stuff. How about you? Well, they took that idea from the book. So I, I read the novel, which you can't get anymore. It's like 600 bucks if you want to try and get it. There's a copy of it as a PDF on the internet. And yeah, the first chapter is all about this ugly-looking Celtic dude who's in love with this gorgeous woman who is nice to him and he tries to make the moves on her and she rejects him and he gets hurt. She goes through this druidic marriage, this Celtic marriage to a good looking dude and the not so great looking Celtic guy kills them both. 
right after they get married. Druids are so mad at this guy because, I don't know, she was a princess or something. They call down a god to curse him as they sacrificed him and curse all his relatives or... I'm like, how does he have any relatives? I guess maybe it's family members. I didn't quite understand how that was supposed to work. But that was the explanation in the book. There's a chapter before Michael's trick-or-treats where he's with his grandmother, and the grandmother explains that they have a curse in their family, and their her dad went crazy one time and started killing people. There's some sort of boogeyman curse that affects their family, and young Michael is just totally into it and, and loving it. Then the grandmother's like, knows that he's going to turn. She's just frightened to death that Michael's going to turn. So the book tries to explain it that way, but John Carpenter's like, no, don't explain it. God damn it. <laughs> that's like, that's going back to European movies where you explain where Frankenstein came from. You, you explain how people become vampires. No, no, that's lame. And I agree. I, I think uh, Halloween 5 and Halloween 6, they didn't know where to go with it. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. That would be my biggest problem with all the sequels, except for maybe this green trilogy. They're trying to do something different. There's no reason to make any of the sequels, in my opinion, because the story in the first movie is fully complete. I think John Carpenter did himself a little bit of disservice at the very end by leaving Michael on the ground and then disappearing. My thinking on that is it's a visual metaphor. So you have metaphors in books, you have metaphors in poems and, and so forth. When you're a filmmaker, you you show it, and he's showing a visual metaphor that evil never dies. There's another Russellville out there. There's another Charlie Bowles out there. Uh, and what I'm referring to is what the caretaker says as he takes Loomis to, his, uh, Loomis to um, do the scrape. You know, every town is something like this happens. I remember over in Russellville, old Charlie Bowles, about 15 years ago. One night he, he finished dinner and he, he excused himself from the table and he went out to the garage and he got himself a hacksaw. And then he went back into the house and he kissed his wife and his two children goodbye. And then he proceeded. Where are we? Huh? Oh, uh, So I think that's what Carpenter's saying when Michael disappears. Michael's dead. He's actually dead. He's dead on the ground. A real person would be dead. That's the end of the story. Lori saved herself. Fate tied those two together and she lived. And Michael got killed. But he decided to make a visual metaphor and make Michael disappear. And the reason we know it's a metaphor is that he cuts back to all the places that Michael's been and does these little shots that are silent, but you can hear the breathing and there's the creepy music and you just see the Dean Cunning awesome creepy lighting everywhere and he's cutting between those and he's basically saying, evil never dies, folks, and evil can come into your house. You think you're safe in your house or not. You hear that breathing? That could be Michael. He could be in your house at any time. Yep. And I think people took it literally, which obviously it's hard not to, right? Because we saw Loomis's reaction. He's like, I knew this was going to happen. He's basically saying, I know that evil can't die. It'll keep cropping up. So everybody took it literally. The producers took it literally. It made a shitload of money. And so they're like, okay, God, we can't let this pile of money, Halloween 2, this pile of money is sitting there. We can't not collect that. Carpenter's like, why? Why are we doing this? It's complete. Nothing else to tell. Michael recreated the night he killed his sister with all these other girls. Then Lori, who was the good girl, she was the smart one. She represents goodness. She's the opposite of Michael. If evil can manifest itself into a person, well, good or the power of fate can manifest in somebody else, and that's that's Lori. And the reason we know Lori is going to kill Michael is because there's a classroom scene, and the teacher 
and Lori are discussing how fate can manifest itself into something physical. She says, like, an element like earth, fire, and water. Because of that scene and her talking about fate, she's actually looking at the guy she's going to defeat out the window. They, those two are going to come together. And and we also see it, too, when Lori's singing the song, I Wish We Were All Alone, I Wish We Were Together. She's singing that to herself as Michael's looking at her, because they're going to be together, mm-hmm. fight each other. And Lori's never going to die, and neither is Michael, because good will always face Michael. So that's one reason I think... Lori survives because she should not have survived. I mean, when he comes out of that closet, right, he's got her. She doesn't know he's there. Her back is turned to him. Full on shot. He's stabbed people before. No problem. He can aim. But suddenly, for some reason, he turns into a stormtrooper and just kind of cuts her arm a little bit. Right. And that's it. And then lets her fall. And get away. And she's smart enough to lock the door, and he's got to break through the door. She's smart enough to break the glass and and push that thing out of the way. She's resourceful. She's not going gently into that good night. So Michael has picked the wrong woman to F with. He's got these other people, no problem. These sinners, these lustful sinners, he got those no problem. But now he takes on the good girl. He takes on the the Girl Scout. They call her a Girl Scout two or three times, I think, in the movie. And they're basically saying, you know, you're a Girl Scout. And also the way she dresses. They dress her real conservatively. And as the movie goes on, you notice she puts on even more clothes. She starts putting on the the smock. You know, she acts more and more like a a matron, a mother, more conservative. Again, he's going after the teenagers who feel guilty about having premarital sex. It's like, see, if you don't, if you have premarital sex, Michael's going to kill you. I think that's why you can't make a sequel because you can't go back to those same themes again. Just getting back to uh, you know other things that have not worked in the franchise. So I do think that the continuity of the franchise is one of the most convoluted (laughs) of any horror franchise ever because effectively they reset the timeline at least six times. You have the original, which was intended to be a one-off, right? right? So you just went through the 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 idea that it's a metaphor for evil remaining in existence. Then you have Halloween 2, and Michael gets blown up and shot through the eyes. So that should pretty much take care of him, right? Exactly. So he's dead there. Then you have Halloween 3, which we'll talk about in a second, a little bit of a, an experiment. Then he comes back in Halloween 4, and he's killed again at the end of that one. And originally, there was uh, some conversation around Jamie Lloyd, so his... I think his niece becoming the new killer because she ends up stabbing somebody at the end of that movie in a replication of the attack of the in the original. Myers is supposed to be down in a, I think he's down in a mine shaft and they threw some dynamite down there. And so he should be dead. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, he shows up in the fifth one. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and then in the sixth one, he ends up like that's where they do the whole Druid Thorn thing. At that point, they said, nope, let's just reset it. And they reset the whole thing. So you have Halloween H2O, which pretends that Halloween 2 through six didn't exist so okay all of a sudden now it's a direct sequel well, i think they did pick it up from the second one though didn't they because she says he's my brother right they include the mythology but they don't necessarily include him being burned and all that oh from the yeah hospital. that makes sense so yeah 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 okay perfect example of where the continuity kind of falls apart right yeah and then laurie chops the head off michael myers at the end of halloween h2o which that seems relatively permanent right, right? Then they do this most horrible retcon and they turn him into an ambulance driver yeah. and Halloween Resurrection. And then they gave Rob Zombie and they said, hey, you know, you just take two films and take a run at it. Mm-hmm. So it's an entirely different universe. Right. And then, of course, it gets back to the Green Trilogy, which then becomes Halloween 2018 as a direct continuation of the first Halloween. So, right. I mean, it's just it's a mess. It doesn't work as any kind of a consistent narrative if you look at the films right. back to back. It's very hard to write a sequel to Halloween because there's no reason. There's no reason for right. it. 
They had to come up with like, oh, well, uh, I don't know. He's got to kill his sister now. Why has he got to kill his sister? There's no motivation for I got to kill all my family members. We'll go after your parents then. Oh, wait, they died right. in that car accident. <laughs> it's like, oh, I got to go after my second cousin. It's so ridiculous. The motivation is right. dumb, and they don't have a motivation. They're like, I don't, I don't know what to do. You know, that's why Carpenter had writer's block. He didn't know what to do. He actually wrote a script after like two or three weeks, and he submitted it. And apparently, it was so shitty. Even the producers like, no, this sucks. Go do it again. He gave him like another month to write it up because John knew there's there's no reason to have a sequel. There's no more motivation for Michael. It's 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 done. He's dead, and let's move on. They go, no, you didn't actually kill him. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Last thing that I would point out to you, just in terms of the overall series, it's so critical, the look in terms of the mask itself. The ultimate mask is obviously the first one in the original. And then there have been a few along the way in terms of the movies where they've been able to do a pretty decent replication. I thought Halloween 2018, maybe that was the second best mask <laughs> in terms of the entire series. But there have been some really, really bad ones to the point of distraction. Halloween 4 is where it comes to mind. When you look at that mask in Halloween 4, yeah, let me look at that. it's terrible. It's this super bright white, super smooth. You have the brown hair. And even what's interesting about that is when they made the masks for that particular film, mm -hmm. there are a couple scenes where they were doing some night shooting and, and some of the masks, for whatever reason, showed up and they were pink. <laughs> so you can see there are a couple shots where the Myers mask is actually pink with some yellow hair. If you are the producer, director, in, in any way involved in the creative side of this, you have to nail the mask. The mask is the most important thing, I think, to make the character effective. It's funny that you and a lot of people online are really, really into, you know, the authenticity of the mask. And uh, yes. now that you mention it, um, when I go back and look at these shots, yeah, you're right, the mask is terrible. Uh, but when I was watching those movies, I, I didn't even think about it. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't think about it at all. So that's one of those things that didn't bother me. I was more into like, okay, what's going on? You know, are they going to explain why why Michael is Michael? Are they going to do anything new with this? No, they didn't do a single thing. What the hell? You're right. I'm looking at a blonde Michael Myers mask. What is going on there? Yeah, it's pretty weird. The Halloween 4 mask is particularly bad. I'd say maybe that may be the worst mask in the entire series. Uh, whoa. And, and his eyes. He, he has normal eye size. He doesn't have the big eye size. Yeah, it's goofy looking. That's very strange. Hey. It could make sense in that he had to get a new mask, right? The original mask is the attorney general's office, you know, and there's a scene where he just grabs a mask from the hardware store. It's just off the wall of the hardware store. I think that he does that in four. That's how he gets his mask. Yeah. I mean, that's why I think it was so smart in the Green Trilogy to actually um, bring the original mask back and have a, a story reason that makes sense to bring it back. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah, but you're right. I'm looking at it, and it's pretty pretty damn awful. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's bad. That's pretty funny. Yeah, but at the time, I was just, yeah, I hadn't really watched the movie a ton, and I was just, like, excited to see another Michael Myers movie. I was like, oh, what are they going to do with it? And I was uh, a little disappointed. So give me your the rundown of your franchise ranking, like, best to worst. How about that? There's only two good ones, maybe three. <laughs> we both agree Halloween 78 is the best. Or you can call it John Carpenter's Halloween. Yes. Well, I said what was good was I did like Halloween 18. Uh, I did like Kills, sort of, on up and down. And Halloween Ends, I think, will probably be up there. It'll probably be the fourth one. And then the Halloween 20, I think they're all going to be in the good category, which means, you know, like 70 to 80 in the reviews. I think Halloween is 95%. It'd be 100% if they didn't have palm trees. <laughs> and then average is season of the witch you know i appreciate they tried something halloween zombie i appreciate he tried to tell kind of a different story 
Uh, Halloween 2 is, you know, it's watchable and entertainment and entertaining, but I just don't see the point. I think it's pointless. And then basically 4, 5, 6, Resurrection, I just think they're all bad movies. You know, there's good things about them, but I just think they're all bad. And I never saw Halloween 2, Rob Zombie. You know, I've been told that it's at least worth checking out for what a dumpster fire it is. Or at least, you know, he tried something different, but it just didn't work out. One crazy thing about that movie is, truthfully, I've only seen half of it. I only made it halfway through <laughs> yeah. before I stopped watching. And I... And it, it takes a lot for me to turn off a movie, honestly. Mm-hmm. But Halloween 2 has an opening sequence where Laurie's in the hospital, and it ends up being a dream sequence. I wonder if that is an homage to the original Halloween 2. I assume that it is. Yeah, I would think so. The Myers attack sequences in the opening part of Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 are savage and very scary and very well done. So that's the one thing is that movie starts off with a bang, right. but then it goes really weird. That's <laughs> so. what I heard. I saw some shots from it, and it did look pretty cool heard online and then from you that that part was really good it's really good actually i mean just in i'm sure you can find that on youtube it's worth watching if you just want to watch the opening there yeah so my rankings and then we can do just a quick comparison yeah obviously we both have halloween at the top as you mentioned i actually think halloween too so if in my good category i would put uh, and this would be my ranking i'd go halloween 2 then halloween 2018 halloween 4 with the problems of the mask i, mm-hmm. I, I do note that um, and then i actually have halloween 3 season of the witch i'd put that in the good category just because I think it's a ton of fun, mm-hmm. that movie. It's just so bizarre and so out there. Over time, I think that movie has actually improved. And just the fact that they subject a kid to a test that melts his head and has spiders and yeah. snakes and stuff crawl out of it, I mean, that, that, was... that took some balls. So I, I kind of appreciate that. Yeah, that's pretty badass. <laughs> and then on the average for me, I, would, I have Rob Zombie's Halloween. Actually, there's a lot I like about that movie. Sure. I mean, it's initially when I saw it, I thought it was a very weird movie because it felt like Zombie really wanted to tell the story of Michael Myers as a kid. Like, that's what he was really interested in. And then he felt obligated to try and do the remake portion of what Halloween was for the second half of that. And so what happens is all of a sudden you're watching that movie and it feels like you're watching a slightly different version of Halloween on Fast Forward is what that feels like. Mm -hmm. And then there is the moment where Michael becomes a building contractor for five minutes at the end of the movie where he's like doing demolition with with the, the big two by four or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of a weird moment. Yeah, it's a funny way of putting it. I have Halloween H2O on there. I think Halloween H2O, there are a couple opening moments mm-hmm. that I think are really good. I think when the, the nurse gets killed, I think that that's pretty effective. And I do think the scene where the woman and her daughter are in the bathroom stall and you see Myers walk in, that's actually really good suspense right there, which, again, you don't see a lot of suspense throughout the rest of the franchise. So I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, you've seen some of these uh, a little more recently than me. I can barely remember anything about H2O. But I do recall that it was good it was watchable it didn't scare me like 78 did but it was entertaining right. you know and there was a lot of good actors in it and budget was much better than you know four five six and it had real actors in it no offense to the <laughs> poor actors in halloween four five and six but it had stars in it right the cinematography was good it it felt like a professional movie to me and i appreciated that after seeing four five and six I, re- I really did appreciate that it looked like a professional movie. And, yeah, I thought it was entertaining. Yeah, and then I have Halloween Kills. as That's my average category. Mm-hmm. That movie is just weird to me. <laughs> that movie feels like a Friday the 13th script that somebody said, oh, let's just try to adapt it as a Halloween film. It's just very, very strange. But it's kind of entertaining, honestly. My bad categories are Halloween 6, 5, yeah. uh, Resurrection, and, and the Rob Zombie Halloween 2. Resurrection is just a terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I saw it on cable one time, and I'm, I'm just like, what is this dumpster fire? What is this a mess? It's a bunch of, it's a bunch of dog shit, Dave. <laughs> yeah, if you, have, if you have Busta Rhymes having a kung fu fight with Michael Myers, you know that your franchise is in trouble. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. That is so funny. Doesn't he have like a secret lair under the house, like a, a dungeon under there? Yeah, there's some like massive tunnel complex underneath the Myers house. It's just, it's ludicrous. It's terrible. Yeah, they were trying to come up with a reason why he keeps going back to his house. The obvious reason wasn't 78. It's like he's trying to recreate that night. He goes home because that's the place to recreate killing his sister or quote unquote, I say quote unquote killing because I think he was doing more than that. But they had to come up with a reason why he comes back to his, his house and there's like, oh, it's because there's a secret dungeon under there. And it's like, it's so stupid. Yeah, it's dumb. I should appreciate the fact that the writers, they had a tough job. And that's what I appreciate about this new trilogy is they actually have come up with legitimate reasons for doing a sequel and legitimate reasons for Michael going home. But we'll talk about that when we get into that. I think we're just about there, but I do have one question. So you and I have a difference of opinion on Halloween too. Sure. I ultimately would have it as the overall second best Halloween film Mm -hmm. in terms of the entire franchise. You have it much lower. Here's why I tell you why I think it works. Go ahead and hit me. So I do think that the idea of doing the direct continuation from the first film, I think, is actually quite creative. Uh, I think that the aesthetic that is created within the film does a pretty decent job of replicating what you see in terms of the, the original Halloween. Very similar in terms of, you know, the lighting, the camera style, POV shots and all that, I think, are consistent. Mm-hmm. So Dick Warlock, who takes over for Myers, I think does a fantastic Myers, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I think the scenes of him in the hospital when he's walking down the stairs. And what's interesting about that is the actor Dick Warlock had to memorize the number of stairs he had so he could keep his head looking straight ahead. Just try walking down a set of stairs with keeping your head straight. It's hard to do. Mm -hmm. That replicates the robotic effect. Seeing Myers walk down those stairs in Halloween 2 is like one of the scarier moments for the franchise Mm -hmm. like across the board for me. The fact, obviously, that you had Jamie Lee Curtis come back. And I think the end chase sequence they're in the hospital. I think that that's a really good chase. And I think there's a moment where Myers steps out and he's standing next to a red light and the light is on his mask. And that's a very cool shot. So mm-hmm. I think, and of course you have Donald Pleasance there and it does kind of close loop the story. So those are all the reasons why I think Halloween 2 is slightly elevated above a lot of the other sequels. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with a lot of that. And definitely the scenes you're talking about, I thought were pretty good. I have a little bit of logic problem with the visuals in the hospital, but as far as cinematography and the, and the lighting, it's still Dean Gundy. And I do like that. I think that's pretty good. My biggest problem is the same thing that John Carpenter had. It's that there really isn't much reason for it. So my biggest problem is that he goes after her because it's his sister. So that just kind of ruins the whole movie for me. It really makes no sense because it kind of changes everything about Halloween 78. kind of ruins it. Yeah, I just don't see the need. Why? Let's start in the beginning. I have some logic issues. You know, makes me not like this movie that much. I do agree with you. I think it looks good. I think the guy who played Michael looked awesome. I thought it was a great feel, and the music was good, and I liked the fact he was walking around downtown. I thought that part was cool, too. I thought it did feel like Halloween night. Well, one thing I do like about it, too, it shows that Michael does have a little bit of motivation. He's got some rules he follows. So he goes in that lady's house, and he grabs her knife, and he's in the background, and then just takes off. He doesn't just randomly kill that couple. In Halloween 78, he's generally supposed to be killing people who are committing the deadly sin of lust, especially if they're teenagers and they're not married. So they kind of stuck to that, except they added on this motivation that he's got to kill his sister. Now, I I guess it kind of makes sense because he's like, I want to recreate the night with my sister, but he's got stand-ins. You know, he had Annie. He doesn't necessarily, in order to fulfill his desire to recreate that night, he doesn't have to go after his sister. He just has to go after a sister figure which has to be a good-looking teenager who's sexually promiscuous. That's what bothers me about it. And Lori turns into a wimp. She is a fighter. She's smart. 
I felt like this movie turned her into a victim, not a final girl who fights back. She is heavily doped up yes. throughout most of the movie. And I do think that that's a, a problem with the script. Yeah. The end chase, at least, is somewhat effective. But there, she isn't really fighting back either. She's just running. So I get your point there. Yeah, but it is a good chase sequence. That's the best part of the movie. It's yeah, intense. definitely. When she's in it, because she's so good. Sometimes you get those good actors that no matter what they do, they just radiate quality and you like them. I have an issue with why she's at the hospital in the first place. The only wounds she has are she broke her ankle and she's got a slight cut. Maybe bruising around the neck. She should just get a cast and some stitches and go home. You know what I mean? She might also be a little traumatized. <laughs> maybe maybe well, they needed to sedate her. Or the, the doctor yeah. was drunk, right? So maybe, maybe he wasn't making a good decision on this. I just feel like it was a contrivance to get her to be more vulnerable. And she's not the vulnerable one. She's not supposed to be the vulnerable one. She's supposed to be the one that fights back, the smart one. So that's kind of the issue I have. I don't know if that makes sense. The sister turn and the idea of turning Lori into a weakling, I, those are fair criticisms, so I, I understand that. I think for me, it's probably just the overall visual style. And mm -hmm. I think that the Myers, the Myers in Halloween 2, I think is probably the second scariest Myers in the series for me, personally. Good, and, and they had the right mask. I think uh, I think Castle kept the mask. Yeah, or Deborah Hill had it. Somebody had it. If, or, yeah, Deborah like, Hill took it. on their bed or something like that. Yeah, Deborah yeah. Hill took it. It didn't give it back. Well, so you mentioned that one of the problems with Halloween 2 is Laurie being a wimp. And certainly that's one thing that with the new trilogy, so David Gordon Green, Danny McBride... They definitely took Lori back to her to her roots in terms of actually having her be more of a Sarah Connor figure mm -hmm. as a setup to your crazy Halloween ends theories. Crazy. What are your thoughts in terms of the new trilogy just in general? So the first two films of the new trilogy, how would you sum up your response? I think what they did is these guys are smart. The scriptwriters are smart. Green's a smart guy. And he's made some really good TV show episode and some interesting movies. They're generally well received. Like Carpenter, he's thinking about these overall themes and he's clearly a fan of the movie and dissected the shit out of the first movie. And I think he mined it for ideas. He had to come up with a reason to have a sequel at all. So the first Halloween 2 is it's a sister. 5, 6, uh, now I gotta kill my niece. And then 6, I gotta kill my niece's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> I have to kill everybody related to me for some reason because the Curse of Thorn, which makes no sense. Unless it's copying the book. So he had to come up with a reason that makes sense. And they do finally explain it, in my opinion. This mostly comes from the visuals, and it also comes from what Laurie says. There's a lot of stuff. Fans call it Shakespeare, uh, where characters talk in more abstract terms about the nature of evil and the nature of Michael Myers. It's in that ICU room when she's with Hawkins, deputy. And then her daughter's in there, Karen's there, and then Allison comes in, uh, the granddaughter. And they basically spell it out that Michael isn't after Laurie, because Sartain thought for sure he figured it out. Michael is a manifestation of evil. Lori is a manifestation of good or fate, and her fate is to defeat Michael, to send the shape back to hell or where it came from. Somehow to defeat the shape. You know, they call it it. In the first movie, you don't question it, right? It's just, okay, sure, you know, it's the one that got away, so Michael's coming after her. But it's pretty clear only Sartain is doing that, it's in his own mind that that's a thing. And it's in Laurie's mind, too. And so I love the twist in Kills when Hawkins says, no, it's not about you. It's not all about you. Yeah, Laurie might be a, a narcissist, possibly. Yeah, I think she's... What, what's that other deadly sin? Uh, ego? Oh, pride? Pride. I think she's sinning here with pride, thinking I'm the chosen one. You know, like when, when Harry Potter 
says, oh, by the way, I'm the chosen one. And Hermione's like, no, you're not. Shut up. She thinks she's the chosen one. And Sartain does, too. And then Hawkins comes in and said, oh, by the way, you're not. He's not after you. You're not that special. I think she actually is. But he's not coming after you. That's a big twist right there. Because she's shocked. Everybody's shocked. Allison and Karen are shocked by that. Allison isn't because she knew that Sartain had taken Michael there. They saw that Halloween... 78, John Carpenter's Halloween, was about the, the sin, I call it the sin of lust, and that's what's supposed to scare you. But what's supposed to scare everybody now in this trilogy is the sin of wrath, how you can become Michael. As Nietzsche says, when you look into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. Mm-hmm. When you fight monsters, take care not to become a monster yourself. So he changed the theme from being about killing people for the sin of lust, premarital sex. And then the sequels were like, oh, I, I don't know, we got to kill our family. And then there's this Celtic thing, you know, they're just trying to come up with motivation. And I think Green just figured, hey, we'll evolve Michael's motivation. So his motivation was sex, but now it's scaring people to death until they turn into monsters. And I, I think that is a good move. Maybe not the great move, maybe it's not perfect. But it's way better than the other sequels, because he just decided, I'm not even going to try and copy that. I'm just going to make a new film based on the ideas that you set up in the first film and take them in a direction that makes logical sense, but it's a completely different direction. I do think the Halloween 2018, I think, is a really good movie. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why I actually like the 2018 version of Halloween is because I think that it does try to lean a little bit towards the original in terms of you know the emphasis on... Some of the stalking stuff, you just it's it's mm-hmm. Myers moving around. His motivation is, I don't think, spelled out particularly clearly in that movie. No, no, not at all. He's this random force of nature. And and the scene that probably illustrates that the most effectively is when he's going through the Halloween neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. So people are you know, brightly lit. It's, it's, it's interesting, too, because in some respects, it's opposite of the 78 Halloween. Yeah. Because the 78 Halloween, you have those great deserted streets and everything's very dark. It lends itself to build suspense. Mm-hmm. The 2018 Halloween where Myers is out and he's wandering in the houses and kind of randomly killing people. I mean, that's pretty interesting because it's all taking place in a crowded neighborhood, which is a very different aesthetic than the original Halloween. So so that at the time I thought was, oh, that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I do think that they replicate some of the moments like the there's a stalking moment where there are these motion sensor lights that come on and off. Yeah, good scene. And he's changing, you know, in each position. So it's almost like he's teleporting when that sequence is happening. And I think it's really effective and interesting. What I didn't like about the 2018 Halloween was the Sartain turn, Mm -hmm. honestly. That was a little beyond the pale. I don't think that they set it up effectively. And then it was interesting in my mind that they still leaned into some of the violence, right? So carving out the guy's head and turning it into a pumpkin and also the head stomp, right? Those are some pretty violent moments in those films. Mm -hmm. It's an updated version of the suspenseful Halloween with, you know, a healthy layering of gore. Mm -hmm. So I thought the 2018 Halloween was really good. Halloween Kills to me is a weird... It was a weird movie. That's the best thing, I guess, that I can say. It is a weird movie. It's a fun, weird movie, though. I mean, it's it's fun to watch. There's some really interesting moments, but I really do think that it's going in the, the Friday the 13th direction versus traditional Halloween. Like, if you were to look at just kind of the actions of the killer and say, what movie was this from, a Halloween or a Friday the 13th franchise, I would say it's more on the Friday the 13th side. You have some logic problems with Halloween, too. I have some massive logic problems with Halloween Kills. Mm-hmm. the yes. entire town coming and getting an uproar and, mm-hmm. and the, the repetition of the evil dies tonight is which is just yes. super annoying dumb as hell this is one guy that killed three people 40 years ago mm-hmm. or whatever it was the idea that the whole town can suddenly is suddenly going to come alive and i do think that some of the dialogue choices like where you have the sheriff say well it's halloween michael everyone's you know deserves one good scare 
they're really bending over backwards to try to pull in some references in a very, very clunky manner. Yeah, yeah. I'm super curious, by the way, to get your Halloween ends theory in relation to that fucking window because having him sit there and look out the window all the time and you know what's up with the window and the window and they reference it and i don't know where it's going but the fact at the very end of that movie that myers effectively takes down a mob of people yeah. in in a steven seagal like fashion and then magically teleports to the window to kill karen i'm just like what the f-? like where is this going <laughs> i am curious to get your theory because yeah. i think the end of i mean i think halloween kills goes off the rails spectacularly for the last 10 minutes or whatever. Right. So that brings us to Halloween ends. Mm-hmm. So, Mr. Uh, Prognosticator of the Halloween <laughs> universe, what are your predictions for Halloween ends? I look at the the actual movies themselves to figure out where they're going cuz usually the they want to foreshadow. You know, like when you saw Aliens and you saw Sigourney Weaver do that um loader. Yep. Because I'm yep. help out foreshadowing but we don't think it's foreshadowing we think it's character development so i did a good job of disguising that foreshadowing as character development showing that she's not a scared girl she's actually tough and she can take care of herself with halloween 18 they start off right off the bat telling you it's supernatural boom it's supernatural we're going there the the director keeps saying that's not supernatural we don't want to make it supernatural and then john carpenter's like it's not supernatural he is supernatural he's quasi or semi supernatural he just has to be Originally, John Carpenter wanted to just put your toe in the supernatural era, but when he made Michael mm-hmm. disappear at the very end, which wasn't supposed to be real, it's just supposed to be a metaphor, then you've turned him into supernatural. And he didn't mean to do that. Everybody now knows Michael's kind of supernatural. The Halloween 2018 reference of him being supernatural, is that the courtyard scene when everyone starts going crazy? That is the awesome courtyard scene, my favorite part of the movie. That's a fantastic scene, by the way. It really <laughs> yeah, is. It really. When I saw that, I was like, ooh, this is going to be good. I had chills up the back of my neck. It yeah. worked. And the music and the building up. And he's like, say something. It's a part of you, Michael. It's a part of you. Say something. Say something, Michael. Say something. I get chills again just thinking about it. You know, it's so. It's a great transition. Yeah. So now I'm like, oh, this guy knows what he's doing. So there's a couple things there, <laughs> dropping a few bombs. Michael is supernatural, I think, and he can sense the mask. Sartine says, oh, he knows you're there. He can talk. He's been watching you since you arrived. Why would he watch them? He knows the mask is coming. He can sense the mask <laughs> is coming. And as it's pulled out, he kind of looks a little bit because he really wants that mask. He really needs that mask in order to fulfill his desire. He can go ahead and kill everybody he wants without wearing that mask. We've seen him do it. He can do it no problem, right? He killed that tow truck driver in the very first movie. Kills everybody in the gas station without that mask. So the mask is important to him psychologically, not important magically. It awakens inside him the supernatural shape. I call it the shape. I still think Michael Myers is a six-year-old kid. And in Kills, they say it. Hawkins twice says... Michael is just a six-year-old in the shape of a man with the mind of an animal. So they've all been kind of blended together. So that's his personality. He wakes up when he sees the mask and gets excited. And who else gets excited? All the insane people. There's this theory out there that people aren't insane. They're just tuned into another plane or another level. Or they're seeing things out of time. Or they're seeing things in other dimensions. So they're actually fully aware of things. It's just... It feels to us like they're insane. Supernatural also means against God. It's unholy. So in a lot of movies, there'll be thunderstorms and lightning storms when something evil happens. And the theory is there is that nature 
is rebelling against the existence of this evil. It's not supposed to be here. And I think that's what they're doing here. By the fact that something evil is affecting the environment and the psyche of animals. It's supposed to be animals are more in tune with nature. Nature is unhappy with the fact that the shape is waking up. And therefore, the people who are sensitive to it, the crazy people and the dog, are getting all elevated and upset. One of the insane asylum guys starts singing Figaro. I don't know if you remember that. He starts going, Figaro, yeah. Figaro. Well, the name of that song, you know, that's the Barber Seville. And the name of that song is Make Way for the Servant. So that guy is a herald. He is heralding the arrival of the shape. So the shape has now arrived. And they're not happy about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> they know this guy's evil. And they know that he's arrived. And they're scared shitless. So some of them are just laughing. But some of them are like, get me the fuck out of here. And the dog's scared, yeah. too. Right off the bat, Green just says, fuck it, he's supernatural. Or quasi or semi-supernatural. Yeah. Speaking of that song, I'll say real quick, in Kills, because that song happens in Halloween 18. In Kills, there's a scene right outside the bar where Tavoli, the other escaped patient, is in the doctor's car, their BMW. And she gets out and runs away, and Tommy comes up with the bat. The song, Tavoli comes in the front seat, turns the car on, and the immediately the song is Figaro. It's the same song. Make way for the servant. And Mike and hmm. Tommy's coming with the bat. He's coming with the bat. This danger is coming towards you. Tavoli, get the hell out of there. No, Tavoli doesn't worry about Tommy at all. He hears Figaro changes the channel. He changes the channel before Tommy gets there because he doesn't care about Tommy. He's more scared of hearing, you know, make way for the servant. And he changes it to W-U-R-G and Willie the Kid is the DJ. And Willie okay. the Kid will make an appearance in the next movie uh, based on inside information. That is one of my theories, is that Michael is now actually supernatural, and he's on his way to go kill people. Now, remember in 18, when he immediately goes up and kills that woman in the window? I was bothered by that, because I was like, uh, Mike, he doesn't do that. Remember in Halloween 2, he, he didn't kill those people, that couple. He doesn't kill people unless they're in his way, or he's turned on by them. So I'm like, well, this is a different Michael. It's a different character. One quick thing about Halloween 2, remember after he leaves and gets the knife, he does go next door and kill the girl. Yeah, he does it right away. He should have been checking around for a long time, especially yeah. if she got naked. If she gets semi-naked or naked or starts having sex, you know, he usually waits until after they're done or th they get undressed, and then he goes after them. And she was fully dressed. You know, he didn't stalk her at all. So, again, I felt that was kind of outside of the rules that were set up in the first movie. The Green is basically saying, well, the first movie's still correct. Everything is right. He was going after women that were like his sister, and he was lusting after them. He was stalking them first, and then he'd kill them. But that was his dress rehearsal for what he's doing in Kills. So he kills his sister, so that's just one. He's sort of waking up as a shape. Number two, he's learning how to kill people, and he's, he's trying to recreate what he did when he was younger. But Kills... He's trying to kill as many people as possible. Adults. People over 13, I should say. As possible. On his way home. That's his goal. He is wanting to spread fear. And Jamie even says this in the ICU room. That his goal is to spread fear. And it gets more powerful the more he spreads fear. She says it's the previous attacks were dress rehearsals for this. So I think that's why this trilogy is better than any of the others. Because... It makes more sense, and it takes into account that Halloween had a different motivation for Michael, and they just explain it as, yeah, that's the way he was at that time, but he's sort of prepping 40 years later for this particular day to create his masterpiece. So that's what I like about Kills, because it's going kind of in that direction. So I don't know if that explains his randomness. Does that, does that make sense, why he's randomly killing people now? I mean, I think what you're doing is you're providing a at least a justification for why, for example, he would 
stop by that old couple that were randomly flying the drone and then just take a light bulb and stick it through her throat for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> right? He's out to kill everybody. Yeah, and that's interesting about yeah. that scene, too. Michael stops at their house not to kill them. He stops at their house to fix his fingers. He's actually in the bathroom and he's doing first aid for his fingers. Mm. And the light is off. And he keeps the light off. Now, you think, oh, maybe it's because he just it doesn't want them to know he's there. Oh, he doesn't care that he, they know he's there. As soon as the drone flies in, what does he do? It's dark in there. He could have just stayed in there, right? Instead, he picks it up and throws it back. He's being a kid. He's just like, fuck you. I'm trying to do this. And he just throws it back. And then when the guy goes in there, I think Michael stays in there until he fixes it, then comes out and kills him. But he's busy fixing his, his finger, and the guy goes in there. And he turns on the light, and Michael immediately smashes the light. Why does he smash the light? The guy already knows he's there. He knows he's there. He already threw the, the drone. Why does he smash the light? Michael's standing right in front of a mirror. He doesn't like it. He does not like seeing himself in a mirror. And he smashes the light so he doesn't see himself in a mirror. He likes seeing himself in reflections because he does it all the time. He even does it in that scene while he kills that woman by the door. We get a cut of him in a window, and we see his shot. And then in 18, before he goes in that woman and stabs her in the window, he looks at himself in the reflection of the window. So I'm not mm -hmm. sure why they set this up, but I don't think Michael likes seeing his reflection in a mirror. He only he okay. likes seeing his reflection in a window, which is similar to why he stands in the window with Judith. What was the other issue with why did he why did he show up teleport in right behind Karen? Yeah, I mean, I just have a massive problem with the end of Halloween Kills, honestly, because... He's on the ground. He's already been shot. Mm -hmm. He's surrounded by 20 or 30 people. Right. And the idea that he could get up and somehow kill everybody, I just think is right. utterly ridiculous. You and I have talked about this, right? But I would run up with a chainsaw and I would cut his arms <laughs> off. Sure, he could stand up. And then what's he going to do? He's going to lean against you right, really, right. really aggressively? He's not going to regenerate. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a exactly. lizard. His tail's not going to come back. No, no. They establish the fact that you can blow off limbs and do it. And it's frustrating that nobody ever does. The other thing that's lame about this movie, and trust me, there's plenty lame about this movie. I get part of this movie an A+, and I get part of it an F. It's like 50-50. Yeah. But overall, I like it. It's a, enough for me to like it, and I understand the themes behind it now that I, I like it a lot better. Do you remember when I gave you uh, the book, The Game of Thrones? Yeah, yeah. I, I read that. Somebody gave it to me. I read the first 90 pages, and I go, what the, what the fuck is going on here? This is stupid. And I threw it away. Yep. And then somebody said, no, 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 you really got to read it. All right, I'll keep reading it. And I got to a page about 120, and I go, oh, my God. This thing's awesome. I get it now. Oh, my God. He was setting this all up. But the first 100 pages sucked ass. And I think that's partially the reason why Kills sucks ass is that he's setting something up for the third one. And he really wants to get to it. So he's kind of a little lazy and he rushes through Kills to get to where he wants to go to and ends. Because what he's trying to do is create the idea that there's evil inside of us and it gets provoked by pain and fear, the lust of wrath, I mean, uh, the sin of wrath, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what he's going after. He, Michael's trying to create so much panic and so many people get killed. Like there's 12 firemen killed. There's four cops that have been killed. This whole family's pretty much been killed. There's people along the streets been killed. The babysitter's killed. You know, so many people are getting killed. Killing somebody doesn't just hurt that one person. It hurts 20 other people that are their friends. And that's right. who he's really after. His target is not the dead person. His target is the living people who are related to that dead person. He wants to get them all upset and angry and go from good people, good Christians living out in the suburbs, 
to becoming evil and dark. So like remember that artist they said who who would who would paint these horrible politicians with masks saying, Oh, you yeah. have this mask of civility and, and so forth, but underneath you're just as slimy as everybody else, or you can be converted. So the theme in Halloween Kills is if I just kill tons of people, you will be so freaked out, you'll be so scared, fear will turn you into a monster like me. And his goal is now Instead of punishing people for lust, it's punishing people for wrath. So when the mob kills him, they all kill him because they want revenge. They've already killed Tivoli by accident, but it doesn't stop them. They didn't learn their lesson. They go after Mm -hmm. Michael. Anybody there who went after Michael with revenge will die because they've broken the rule. You do not go after Michael with revenge in your heart, with hate in your heart, or you'll get wiped out. And he's dead. He's on the ground. He's reaching for that knife. And Karen, throughout this whole thing, Karen has been a reasonable person, but she lost her husband. There's a scene where she's upset that she lost her husband, and she is washing her hands in the close-up, and they're covered in blood, including her ring, her wedding ring. And she's looking at it. She's sort of like Lady Macbeth before she's committed the crime. So you're actually hinting at the fact that she is going to succumb, be seduced by the dark side and become a killer just like Michael. A lot of times you can justify killing people as long as they're a monster, as long as you think they're a monster. Michael's supposed to be the case where he really is a monster, but you still shouldn't kill him. You should still just arrest him, have the police take him, give him justice, and then throw him back in the sanitarium. But nobody wants to do that. They just want revenge, and she wants revenge. She's got she's got anger in her heart, and she becomes corrupted. And that's why she gives him the coup de grace at the very end. If she had not done that, she'd still be alive. Even Tommy figured that out. Tommy knew he was fucked. Tommy knew he was fucked from the beginning. He's like, I'm going after him. He gives that speech. And before he leaves, he puts money in a bucket that says, uh, love lives in the daylight. And it's supposed to raise money for a a children's charity. And he puts money in there to counter the fact he's going to do something bad. He's like, I'm going to put 50 bucks in there to counter the fact that I'm going to go kill this killer. I'm going to become a killer to kill this guy who scares me and who's killing other people. He even looks at Karen and says, Karen, go. Go be with your daughter. He gives her an out. He tells her right then and there, don't do this. You're a good person. We're all going to suffer from this, but we feel like we need to do it. You don't have to do this. We got this. We got this, Karen. Go. And she's like, no. And she turns into a hypocrite. What is she wearing? She's wearing a Christian shirt, a Christmas shirt, right? She's so far, she's like the most pure person there. And she succumbs, succumbs to the seduction of getting revenge and anger. She's not strong enough to stop it. And so she gives him the stab in the back, and then he's dead. And he is dead. Like, again, in Halloween 78, he's dead. But he feeds off these people, their fear and their anger, and that's what brings him back to life. That's how he revives, and that's how he kills everybody there, because of their fear. He feeds off of it like that hate monster in Star Trek. Remember that? (laughs) You got more powerful the more the Klingons fought each other. Klingons and and Star Trek fleet guys fought each other. And that's why he comes back to life. He's supernatural. He's feeding off their fear like an energy vampire. And that revives him. And he can take 15 shots. He got shot, what, twice already in the neck. Karen shoots him in the neck. Lori shot him in the shoulder. And then that one dude shoots him five times. Oh, wait. I think it's uh, Sheriff Brackett shoots him five times. Then I think uh, somebody I think had a hockey stick at some point as well in the middle of Illinois. So I, Yeah, I, oh, no, there's a woman with an iron, too. I'm, <laughs> She's got a blonde iron. iron. <laughs> She's going to smash his face. It's so hilarious. She's been watching the, the final conflict, actually. She's going to iron him to death. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very funny. They're all wearing Halloween costumes. There's a dude dressed as a cat. It's definitely funny. I like the theme, but I agree. A lot of the execution in this movie is pretty bad, and I think it's because Green was itching and dying to jump to the finale. And this is also 
chapter two of a story. It's act two of one big story. Uh, so okay. it's kind of the crappy part, and you have to build this up in order to have ends make any sense. The other thing I think proves this theory is true is there's a flashback to after Hawkins shoots his partner in the neck. He just feels super guilty about doing it, and he's just traumatized by this. He's scared to death, and he hates what he did. And then Michael comes out. He has no weapons, right? All he had, remember when he came after that guy? He doesn't have the knife anymore. All he came out with was some rope, right? Or a chain or something that choked that guy? It was a rope because I think they had to oh, he, somehow tie in the continuity of him stealing knives and rope from the hardware store. Well, he used the rope to tie up Bob <laughs> is what he did, right? Isn't that what he, I mean, he obviously used the rope to when Bob swung in the closet in 78. Maybe he had some extra rope. I'm not sure how he used his rope. So. Some slack in his pocket. Yeah. Or this rope there. And he goes after that cop. And so they go down, and he's standing there. He has no weapons. He's surrounded by cops. He's just going to blast it to shit. Well, he's doing the exact same thing he did with that mob. He's surrounded by a mob. It's just a mob of cops. And Hawkins mm-hmm. even says, I want to get revenge. You know, they all they wanted blood. They wanted revenge. I could tell that. So did Loomis. That cop comes up and hits him from behind. Michaels doesn't do anything about it, really. He hits him in the knee. He collapses with one hit. One think, hit. Right? He just doesn't goes he down because he's testing them. He's testing them. He's going to see if they're going to succumb to wrath and they're going to beat the shit out of him. He's on the ground. The guy even rips his mask off. And Loomis just comes up and is going to give him the coup de grace again. He's going to pull a Karen. And who stops him? Hawkins. Hawkins stops him. He goes, I saw the look in Loomis's eyes. All he wanted was more blood, more death. I couldn't take it. And in that moment, all I could think was that inside that monster, there was somebody's baby boy. He gets handcuffed, and we don't see him again for 40 years. If he had let Loomis kill him, what would have happened is Michael would have been dead there for a while. Then he would have fed off their wrath, popped up, and he probably would have killed all the cops. Or he would have been in the, the ambulance, right, or the in the body bag, and he would have pulled that scene from Halloween 4 where he kills everybody in the hospital. Or in the, yep. you know, I think in H-22, H-20, right, he does that again. I appreciate the idea that they've taken Halloween from the 78 script of being about lust and being more about the sin of wrath. You look into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. That's what Michael did. I think that's how he became the shape, because you were talking about the window. Let's jump to the window, right? Why he keeps going to stare at the window. They, They establish that he keeps going home and wanting to go home. So Karen doesn't know what's going on, right? She thinks Michael's dead. She here, She's in the hospital with Hawkins when Hawkins said, he goes to this window and he stares out. My partner said, even as a kid, he went to this window and he stared at it. And my partner stood at that window and looked out there. And, and I think he saw, I think he knew when he stood there what, what Michael was doing. And so Karen heard this and she wants to know what the hell is going on. The funny thing is, is Allison predicted that Michael wouldn't be dead. You know, when she's hugging up her uh, next to her mom before the EMTs haul her away, she says, he'll always be with us, won't he? She was referring to Michael, that he's never going to go away. He's always going to be there. But I think she means the shape. I don't think she actually meant Michael. Michael is supernatural, like we said. He kills anybody who goes into this house. You know, the little John says that. The big John, little John said that. Anybody who goes into this house uninvited, he kills. Except for a few exceptions, like Hawkins and Allison. Is there any sort of rational explanation then for, I can't remember if it was big John or little John, why they would just sit there? And see Michael staring out the window and simply just succumb to death. Because that, that was a really stupid moment in that movie as well. Like I said, there's a lot of awkward and badly done stuff in that movie. The overall <laughs> plot, I think, is great. But, oh man, there's so much cheesiness in there. 
there's so much in there that I'm like, oh, that was lazy. Oh, that was dumb. Uh, I can tell you don't care about shooting this. You just want to get this over with so you can get to ends. I think he's fully distracted in a lot of these okay, things. Okay, so I just wanted to make sure that so, so there was no no reason within your mythology that somehow Myers would have like the ability to hypnotize him or something like that. That's not what you're saying there. No, no, no. I think that guy just gave up. He knew there's no way to get away. You know, the second one, the, the, the big John. What about hypothetically running down the stairs? Forget what uh, Roger Ebert called it. In order for the plot to work, people have to act stupidly. There's a ton of that. Allison even makes that point before they go into Michael's house. She goes, all right, the key to this is that we all got to stick together. And that's when Lonnie goes, no, 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 no. I'm leaving my son behind. My son's not coming in. And I can't, I'm not, can't be responsible for you. Let, let's separate. Everybody fucking separates in that goddamn house. It's so frustrating. The cop goes one way. Yeah. The other cop goes that way. Big John goes this way. Little John goes that way. Allison goes this way. Or her boyfriend goes the other way. Fucking guys, stay together. You know, yeah. it's, that's so frustrating. They do it three times in the movie. Three times. So maybe there's a reason for it, but right now I can't think of it other than it's contrivance. You can go back to your ends theories. Keep going. Why he's staring out the window? Well, getting back to Karen. Karen goes up there. Why? She's just got to know. She's got to know what Michael sees. She looked up there and saw a vision of him, and that's in her head. He's, he's not really there. There's no ghost of Michael, six-year-old Michael. But she wants to know about that six-year-old Michael. She's like, what caused six-year-old Michael to turn into the shape? And this is one shot. This is all one shot. This is because you're right. He does teleport. Because one shot, she comes in from the door, and she comes to the window, and she closes her eyes and looks up. And what she's doing there is she's talking to the window and she's saying, show me what Michael saw. And then boom, out of behind her, the window does it. The window shows her what Michael saw and what Michael saw was the shape. And the shape kills her because she is in the house uninvited. And she asked for it. She summoned him by accident. She wanted to know what Michael saw. Michael saw the shape. And the shape is the evil that was within himself. And that's why he stared at the window. So the window is the abyss that you're speaking of in terms of that's the abyss that he's staring through and that somehow is connecting him to... Right, and it's not necessarily that window. It's any reflections. Every time he sees a reflection himself in a window, he likes it. He sees himself powerful and he sees himself able to conquer anything and be this powerful being and take revenge on the world. You know, like a six-year-old. Like, six-year-old's favorite character in all of Star Wars is Darth Vader. And George Lucas tried to explain that. He's like, kids just don't feel very powerful. They feel like the world is against them, everybody's bigger, and they like Darth Vader because he's got power. Nobody messes around, nobody tells him what to do. And I think that's the motivation for Michael staring out the window, is he feels powerless and he looks out the window and he sees himself and he gets kind of seduced into the darkness. So in the world of Halloween, if you look into the abyss and it looks at you, it literally will manifest itself into a person. It'll infect you. So there's this idea in Halloween that the evil that Michael represents infects people and can spread. And that's the theme that they, they went with in Kills. And I think with this trilogy. Why no mirrors then? Uh, mirror versus window? Yeah, I don't know. That's one thing I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I think he comes home and looks out that window. I think he goes home either to recreate that night and he just feels comfortable there. Or they keep saying he goes home. He's not going home. He's going to a house. His home is his bedroom, where his mom and dad are, where his sister is, what life was like before he was six. That's his home. That's the only thing he knows about home. So I wonder if he goes out there and stares at the window and he sees either Judith or his family, or he, he somehow is able to see what life was like before he succumbed 
to the shape before he succumbed to anger and wrath and hate and became the shape. And the shape is supernatural. It's evil, you know, incarnate that, you know, got in there and infested in him because he looked too much into it. And the cop goes and he looks in that window and he realizes he sees a dark version of himself. And another reason I think this is true is because in the book, I read the novelization, he starts seeing something. He starts seeing a, sh- a shape, a form, and it starts forming, and then Michael attacks. And the same thing with Michael. Michael goes and stares at that window, and in the book he says he sees something more – I forget the exact quote – but he sees something more powerful than him. He sees something, and then suddenly little John walks in, and he kills him. So I think when he's particularly at that spot in that window, and he doesn't want anybody else to do it. Anytime somebody stands in that window, he does not want them to do it. That's his spot. He kills that cop. He kills Karen. He kills the Johns because they've been in there. Uh, he does not want people fucking with his spot. That's his spot. And I think he gets some sort of solace out of looking through the window at that point. You know, he either feels empowered or maybe he's seeing home. You know, maybe he's seeing family because he's still a six-year-old kid. That's what I think is going on, and that's why I think he's also playful. Played with those kids. He dressed up the babysitter he killed. He also took their pumpkin. Remember, the boyfriend made a pumpkin with hearts in it to give to Mm -hmm. the blonde babysitter? He takes that and he throws it in the water next to her in in the aquarium. He went downstairs and brought it back up to do that. I think he's still a six-year-old kid, and he wants to play. I think he only kills people 13 and older. So he kills the kid in, in the car. In Halloween 18 or 2018, he kills uh, Lumpy. Yeah, is his name? Lumpy. So I think Lumpy is a teenager. He's like 13 or 14. And I think that there's a 13 or 14 year old in the skeleton mask in Kills. Those three kids. He doesn't kill the other two because they're too young. He, he doesn't kill Lonnie when he's a kid, right? When he's running from the Mullaney's. The Dickensian orphans, as I call them in our pod. The Mullaney family. Um, also, he doesn't kill to- Tommy when they're a kid or um, Lindsay. He doesn't kill kids. He walked past that baby, no. didn't kill it, didn't kill anybody on the street that was a kid. He will not kill kids because they're not corruptible yet. They're not capable of committing any sort of sin that pisses him off. The sin of wrath or the sin of lust, they're not capable yet. But once they're 13, there's something about teenagers that he he's willing to kill, no problem. When we're talking about him being a six-year-old, I think that's where they're headed in and ends so let's maybe move toward what i think is going to happen in ends yep your official halloween ends predictions yeah so what i think is happening in the ends is he becomes unstoppable something you can't kill physically you can't defeat physically i think she has to beat him psychologically and take away his power and that's the only way you can kill him when those cops beat him but they didn't kill him they just knocked him to the ground and arrested him mm-hmm. loomis didn't shoot him in the back and he gave up Again, I think Green mined the first movie for ideas for this. And I think there's a scene where Loomis calls Michael it. It's a monster. And then finally Marion says, I love your compassion. Are there any special instructions? Just try to understand what we're dealing with here. Don't underestimate it. Don't you think we could refer to it as him? If you say so. I think that's what Laurie has to do, is physically maybe take him down, but not out of anger. And she needs to show him some compassion and some sympathy and some humanity. And that robs him of his anger. It robs him of his hate. The worst thing you can do to somebody who's infuriated and angry is to fight them even more. To meet them with the same level of anger. It's like when you tell somebody to calm down. Calm down, man. Calm down. What does that do? (laughs) Just pisses them off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So instead, you have to go with sympathy. I think what you have to do is you have to... um, You have to go, yeah, yeah, you're right. I did do that. I'm sorry. You're a victim here. I feel sorry that I did that. And I understand why you're upset. 
So you think she's going to take him down by maybe like hugging it out with him? No, I don't think she's going to hug him out. Those cops didn't, and they survived. They arrested him. I think she's going to have to somehow show him some humanity. She can catch him. She can be Batman. She just can't be uh, Dexter. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she, can't yeah, okay. kill she can't do it out of anger. Dexter does it out of compulsion, but you know, she can't be doing it out of vengeance. You know, She can't be the Punisher. She's got to be Batman. You can take him down and, and tie him up and arrest him. But I think in order to really defeat him... You have to realize he's a six-year-old. you got to reach that six-year-old inside him who's angry and scared and doesn't understand the world. And all he knows is violence. You know, he equates sex with violence. He equates any sort of human interaction with violence. He's broken on the inside. And you have to realize that when you deal with him. So I think that's the way it's going to go. And the other thing that proves that, besides the fact that they keep telling us that he's a six-year-old, and the fact that he doesn't like looking in mirrors, I think mirrors are going to have something to do with it. The trailer came out to, at CinemaCon, and they said Michael and Lori fight. Lori is able to defeat him physically, get him on the ground, and hold a knife up to his face. But the way they described it, it sounds like he's holding the mic this way, but somebody said no. She's holding a knife sideways. I mean, where's the podcast I'm trying to show you. <laughs> you know, people are describing he, he's holding a knife like she's going to stab him, like a threat. The psycho stabbing right. motion, if you will. She's holding it sideways, flat ways, to his face, to his eyes. She's showing him the reflective side of the knife so he can see himself in the reflection. Hmm. So I think somehow showing him humanity and then somehow getting him to see who he really is, not the way you picture yourself. He pictures himself by looking at reflections. He, he likes seeing it. But he doesn't like the mirror because that shows him who he really is, and he doesn't like it. So I think that's another way you go about defeating him. Also, everybody, all the filmmakers and everybody who worked in it, they go, this is going to be a surprise ending. Jimmy Lee Curtis says the ending will fuck you up, it'll blow your mind, and people will hate it. <laughs> you know? And I think people who like watching Friday the 13th and like watching Kills, and they like seeing violence, they love Kills. They love the movie Kills. They're like, oh, these awesome Kills. They're going to hate this because they just want to see Michael walk around and stab people in front of some Halloween decorations. They don't want this psychological, metaphorical movie. They don't want any of the Shakespeare. But I think that's what's going to happen. Also, the director wrote the script and he took it to Carpenter and said, hey, I'm having him review the script. I want to make sure that he doesn't think it's too much like Christine. So there's a couple ways to look at that. How's it like Christine? There is supposed to be a scene in a junkyard with cars, cars around. The cars don't fight each other, but it's in a junkyard filled with cars. It's just foggy at night. There is definitely some sort of finale that's out somewhere in the woods, some wooded neighborhood near some junkyards, and it's foggy as all hell. Maybe it's your old neighborhood. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we didn't have a lot of fog, but it was definitely woodsy and, and creepy. And there's plenty of shots of Lori walking around with a knife, and there's even a shot of Allison with two knives. So Allison's going to be an interesting character. The other way it could be is Christine is sort of like Michael Myers. The car is Michael Myers. car is a manifestation of evil in the form of a machine. And it possesses the character Arnie, a teenager who's mm -hmm. a total nerd, who's not very powerful. And he gets seduced by the power of the car and becomes cool, right? Puts on a leather jacket, slicks back his hair, and gets a hot-looking girlfriend that's way out of his league. And at the very end of the movie, they try and destroy the car but save Arnie. It doesn't work because they're too fused together at this point. And yeah. the evil entity has taken over Arnie. He's not letting him go. It's done. I feel like Michael's going to die. They're going to try and get to him. They do get to him temporarily. They, they weaken him. But I think the shape just keeps coming back. There's hints that Laurie will die. 
this seems too much of a cliche to do that and have her die. It's like, oh, that, that's what will happen. That's what I predict. And it's like, ah, I think these guys are going to go in a different direction because I feel like they like doing things different. They like subverting your expectations. And I'm 100% fine with that. Uh, I'd rather see that than something cliche that I can predict. I think she's probably going to live. The one thing I thought would be cool, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it, I did find the parallel between Michael's missing family and the survivors. You got Hawkins as a father figure. You got Lori as a mother figure. And you got Allison as an older sister figure. She's a teenager. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, and he doesn't kill. He keeps not killing Allison. He has a choice to kill her or kill Sartain. And he's looking right at her. At the same time, uh, Sartain says Judith, because she lies and says, uh, he spoke to me. And what did he say? What did he say? He said one word. And he goes, was it Judith? And then Michael looks at Allison. So he's looking at Allison as you see the word Judith. He turns away and goes after Sartain instead. He doesn't hunt Allison down. And when Allison shoots him or stabs him, he doesn't kill her. He just tosses her down the stairs. She's going to survive. Beats the shit out of her boyfriend. And then he comes down the stairs, and he's got the knife, and he's going to kill her. But she's like, do it. Do it already. And he hesitates. He hesitates. He's not doing it for some reason. She's able hmm. to hold him off. How can she do that? She just threw her boyfriend around left and right and, and you know lifted him off the ground with a knife and thrown people around. He's obviously strong enough to overcome Allison, but he doesn't. He holds it at her neck and doesn't quite do it until the mom comes along and, and stabs in the back. And she's the only one who's been in the house that doesn't die. I think Michael might see her as his older sister, as a Judith character. And then maybe Hawkins is a father character and Laurie maybe as a mother character. So I think what would be very strange and very weird is if Michael reverts back to being kind of human, like a six-year-old. The shape's gone, I don't know, forever, and he gets his family back again for a short period of time. One thing I'm hoping that they don't do is some sort of a weird situation where all of a sudden... He's isolated as the six-year-old boy, like in, in a physical form, and then somehow the shape is there too. I, I don't know yeah. if you remember at the end of Friday Thirteenth Part Eight, Jason takes Manhattan, but all of a sudden, when New York does its uh, nightly release of toxic waste through the New York sewers, <laughs> which is like, but all of a sudden it washes over him and he becomes the young Jason. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that movie's just hot garbage across yeah. the board. Oh, but of course. but what I'm hoping they don't do is something like that. That's taking the supernatural thing and that's hitting the overdrive button on it, I guess. No, I don't think he's going to physically revert back to a, a six-year-old. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I, I wouldn't think that they would based on at least the certainly the quality of 2018. Right. So the shape is really a term for the dark side of yourself. And it just happens to be in this Halloween world. When you too deeply look into the abyss and it looks into you, you will start getting supernatural powers. You'll get the Michael Myers powers. And I think the shape is something that, if you're not careful, will happen to you and, and will happen again. So it doesn't die. Evil doesn't die. And I find it interesting that Charlie Bowles killed his family in 1963, the same year. Six-year-old Michael kills his sister. So Charlie Bowles is dead. Maybe the shape got into him. This mm. is reaching. This is probably reaching. And uh, I just find it funny and ironic that it's the same year. you know. And then Michael gets the shape in him and he does it. I've heard rumors that, yeah, there is going to be another shape. So the movie ends with a kid, a girl maybe, killing her entire family on Halloween night. What's funny about that is they actually tried that direction initially for Halloween 4. Right. The intent was to then retire the Michael Myers character, but continue this idea, what you're saying about the shape. But in this case, the personification of that was going to be the Jamie Lloyd character. Right. When Jamie Lee Curtis was asked, you know, is Michael finally dead? And she's like, well, what's dead? What's dead? Define death. In a Halloween movie, to find death for Michael Myers. 
I have noticed that there is a lot of homages to all the Halloween movies. To all the Halloween movies are in there. There's references to Halloween 4 and Halloween 5 in it. We do have a Halloween Kills podcast you can listen to. And I call out that so much of that as you're going through it. Yeah. Even Halloween 3, right? Yeah. I mean, even the, the masks from Season of the Witch show up in Halloween Kills, right? Yeah, yeah. He's paying homages and taking little bits from all the Halloween movies. Oh, totally. He's trying to pay respects to the Halloween fans. Hey, you like this movie? I'm going to put a few things in there for you. You're a long-term fan. Marcus and Colin thought I was crazy for pointing out some of the stuff <laughs> I was pointing out. Like, for example, I think the gas station in Halloween 2018 is remarkably similar to the gas station design in Halloween 4. I am nodding That's my just head. one little example. Yeah, I'm nodding my head. I'm staying away from broken down gas stations in Illinois, by the way. I'm just going to keep <laughs> driving until I find a brightly lit one on the corner of a very busy street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another reason I think there's a lot of Christian themes in this is Aaron, the podcaster, is talking or looking at and having a, not a conversation, but some sort of interaction with that mute lady in the uh, resurrection, holy resurrection church van. If you listen in the background, you'll hear the fight going on inside the garage between Michael and the guy he steals the overalls from. She glances over it and sees it, and Aaron never glances over. It's almost like she's like, look over there, dumbass. It's almost like she knows what's going on. She's crazy, too. She's got that crazy connection to what's really going on, and she's trying to hint to him, look over there. Your girlfriend's next. So I think that's interesting. Also, uh, I have another theory that Aaron's not dead because we don't see him die. When they go to the gas station, we only see her dead, and we see the guy whose mm -hmm. teeth got knocked out and zipped up in a body bag. We don't see the guy who stole the coveralls from, who was bloody on the ground, and we don't see Aaron dead. In the book, he is dead, but in the script, it doesn't describe him as being dead. And then in hmm. Kills, when Tommy shows up at the bar, he immediately says, I'm a little upset. She goes, what's wrong with you? I'm a little upset by the two bodies they found at the gas station. I was like, two bodies? There's supposed to be four. So I wonder if Aaron's still alive, he's taken to the hospital, and his brain is messed up, and we'll see him again in three. I did see a casting call that said that they need a stuntman, and he played somebody named Corey. So the guy's name is Aaron Corey. So there's a stuntman who plays Corey. Hmm. So it could be him, and if you need a stuntman, you need a fight, right? You need a fight or some stunt. Something violent's going to happen. So I have a feeling he might be the, uh, the rug puller. He's still full of wrath. I mean, he's a podcaster, so he's obviously a very important person. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing he says, too, like my, uh, Green, you know, drops these hints. Aaron says, I think if you talk to Michael, he'll talk back to you. So I think Michael's going to talk. I think Aaron basically predicted what's going to happen. I think he says, <laughs> if you sit down and talk with Michael, I think he'll talk to you. And I think he'll talk to her because she might be a mother figure. And uh, Sartain says, does he say Judith? I don't know. Maybe Michael calls Allison Judith. That may be a thing. I think we're not going to see your normal Michael. Your quiet, stalking, normal Michael. I think the survivors, I call them the quad because Lindsay is one of them too. They're going to figure out a way of taking him down because they basically figured out in kills you can't physically defeat him. And that was the whole purpose of Michael killing that whole group of people is you can't physically kill him. The only way to deal with him is showing him some compassion and then you can arrest him. That was the scene with all the cops then. And that's why that's it. Yeah, or, or cut his limbs off with a chainsaw yeah, when he's on the ground. That that's, yeah, yeah. Even, even that tape with Loomis on it in the first movie. Aaron's listening to that recording of Loomis giving a statement. And he says, well, you have to kill him and then you have to burn the body. <laughs> he basically says, if there's a body left, you got to burn it. So maybe that's what happens. They finally do burn the body. But they reach Michael as a six-year-old first and take away his power. If he's angry and he's pissed off and he's scared, he's empowered. You know, he's supernaturally empowered. But if he's getting some compassion and understanding and some human 
feeling, uh, I think he's not powerful anymore. So I don't know exactly how that's going to play out. The overall prediction is that compassion will depower him, basically. Yeah, don't go after him angry. Don't go after him angry. Don't go after him like you're trying to get revenge. I mean, that was the point of Batman, right? The last Batman movie, he was trying to get revenge, and that caused the hate of crime to spread in negative ways, right? I mean, that's what Batman figures mm-hmm. out in the end of the, the Batman, is that, no, i got to be a hero. I can't just beat the shit out of people. I've got to do more than that. Instead of going after these people with revenge, i got to actually help the city. I, here I'm beating people up for my own pleasure because I'm angry that my parents are dead, but I'm doing it for the wrong reason. So you can go after Michael, but you have to do it for the right reason. You can't do it for the wrong reason. Uh, that's kind of like even like a script cliche, isn't it? And that's why it was in the Batman. It's a popular cliche. It's seen in a lot of movies. Right. And I think that's what's going to happen. I'll go into real quick the uh, radio tower. So if you see in Kills, they show this goddamn radio tower at least three or four times. In the very beginning, when um, the boyfriend, Cameron, Cameron, that's it. Cameron's dressed up like Bonnie, and he's walking home, and he's trying to call Allison, and he runs into Hawkins. In the background, you can see there's a radio tower. Hmm. When the cops chase Michael down the alleyway in the flashback, or Hawkins is, you can see the radio tower. And then uh, when Tommy's going after Tavoli in the car outside the bar, Tavoli's the escaped patient that looks like the penguin. Yeah, he's basically the penguin. He's even got the umbrella. You can see the uh, radio tower. And I think there's another scene where you can see it as well. So a lot of people are like, ooh, the radio tower. Maybe it's connected to the mask and it's giving him signals and shit like that. I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. But if you look in the bar, there's all these advertisements for giving you the urge. Willie the Kid Live on WURG 94.9 Haddonfield's home to classic rock and roll. And you actually hear it on the radio when Tavoli crashes the car. And there are some behind-the-scenes pictures of the radio station. So there's this cool shot of WURG. It's got these neon lights and a little graphic of electric bolts around the W. And it's WURG, home to Willie the Kid. But on the outside, there's a poster for Willie the Kid. But there's also a poster for, uh, like, a morning zoo. And there's also a poster for talk, a talk show. So me, I'm just speculating now. I'm just like, I wonder if the talk show is going to have something to do with it. Who would be on the talk show? Would Aaron be on the talk show? Is he hanging around and talking about Michael? He is a podcaster, right? Investigative journalist. And wouldn't he want to hang out and see Michael get killed because he killed his girlfriend? I don't think he's down with showing Michael any compassion. There's some rumor going around that Lori buys the house. She's buying Michael's house and she's got to tear it down. What if she goes on WURG and she uh, tells everybody and she even tells Michael through the radio? To lure him out. Like a pledge drive? Contribute so I can tear down the house? Well, he's gone for four years. So I forgot to mention that. It's a time leap. Town is kind of getting back to normal and kids are actually trick-or-treating again. And people are starting to decorate for Halloween again. Which, I don't know why. Why would you ever, in Haddonfield, ever celebrate Halloween? So I wonder if she goes on there, uh, the radio show with Aaron. Sort of like that scene from Manhunter. Remember that scene in Manhunter? Where they team up with the douchebag reporter for the Tatler. Freddie Loudon was his name or something like that, I think. I forget. Yeah, something like that. And they talk about the Tooth Fairy being gay and the Tooth Fairy is homophobic. So they're trying to draw him out and get him in a trap. I wonder if Laurie's going to try and do the same thing to lure uh, Michael out. But again, instead of going after Laurie, he goes after the radio station guy. Maybe he finds out where she lives through the radio station because her address is on file. So that's my prediction of plot. The other thought is, is these movies are supposed to be homages to Carpenter films. And, you know, what other Carpenter film has a radio in it? The Fog, right? The Fog. Yeah. So what, yep. what happened in that? She does two things on the radio. She tells people where the fog is right, to be aware. And she also apologizes to her son because she can't get to him. So if, if he's going to copy The Fog, then one of those two things would happen. I thought it would be kind of cool 
if people called in the radio station and said, I saw Michael down this alleyway. And he goes on the radio and tells everybody. So people are listening and they figure out where Michael's going. Maybe they get hands up at the junkyard. And that's how Lori and Allison and maybe Hawkins and, and so forth find him. I think that would be a cool scene if somebody was tracking Michael's movements. I haven't seen that in a movie before, so I think that would be kind of cool, except for the fog, obviously. I think that might be how the radio station comes into it, but I don't know. I'll give you one last thing, and I'll shut up about it. <laughs> That's why you're here, dude. Yeah. It's, it's your crazy theory, so keep going. Yeah. The uh, other thing is is there are billboards for the Red Rabbit Lounge, which we saw in the first movie. Yep, the matchbook. Yeah, the matchbook. I was wondering, so speaking of that, I think Loomis passes judgment on the nurse for going there, right? She's yeah. going there and being, I don't know, a barfly, maybe being uh, promiscuous there. It's a strip club. Why would a respectable nurse go there? I think he's passing judgment on her, so like Michael passes judgment on teenagers for being lustful. So there may be some connection in there. Behind-the-scenes picture is that uh, there are kids missing. I believe there's more than one missing over the last four years. So there's a billboard, a fake billboard, of a kid, a little girl named Megan Baxter. And I haven't seen if there's a Megan Baxter in any of the Halloween movies, so I'm not sure if it's a callback. And it says, last seen on October 30th, 2021. This movie takes place in 2022. So she's been missing a year. It's got a phone number, so if you guys want to call, it's 217-555-9191. So if you see Megan Baxter, make sure you call that number. All right? County <laughs> sheriffs want to want to talk to you. So what's going on? Michael's kidnapping kids. Why is he kidnapping kids? He wants to play with them. He's a six-year-old. That's my theory. It also could be he's uh, doing a little grooming for the next shape. So the rumor is a little girl kills her family. So I don't know. Maybe it's Megan Baxter. So the rumor may be completely wrong. But it would be an interesting thing that Michael hangs out with kids. And uh, he's kidnapping kids because he's lonely. He's reverted back to a six-year-old and, and he wants to play. Like he was playing with those kids in the park. The other reason I think they're going to get to Michael's six-year-old version of himself and pull that out is the code name of the movie is called Cave Dweller. And the metaphor there, obviously, is the cave dweller is six-year-old Michael, and the cave is the shape. And caves are not abysses. You can walk out of a cave if you see the light, right? If you see your way out of the cave, you see the light of mm -hmm. the entrance light at the end of the tunnel, you can get out of the cave. Well, I'm thinking that that's why they chose that code name. Unless it's just something stupid, like, uh, what, was, what was the Star Wars one, Empire Strikes Back? Blue Harvest or something like that? Blue Harvest. Terror out of space. Apparently, that's a reference to a detective novel called Red Harvest. It might have been a Dashiell Hammett novel. Seeing this kid kidnapped, all the hints that Michael's a six-year-old, the way he plays, the way he sets up his little um, dioramas, you know, with the bodies. Remember he did that with the yeah. little John and the big John? Yep. And these kids are missing, and it's called Cave Dweller. I just feel like they're going to go in that particular direction. And also pay attention to the song lyrics. Uh, obviously, the opera was a hint. Make room for the servant. Is uh, Michael the servant of evil? Uh, trying to turn people, corrupt people, turn them from good people using wrath and fear. Is he a servant of the devil? Is he a servant of evil? But there's also other songs. So when Michael kills Big John, Little John, there's a song in the background. And it's about dancing with you forever in the moonlight and wanting to be together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anne Murray song. Uh, can I have this dance for the rest of my life? You know, is that referring to Laurie and Michael dancing forever? Or the good and evil personification of Laurie and Michael forever being locked in yeah. a some sort of spiritual battle? Yeah, maybe six-year-old Michael and the shape were locked together in a, in a long dance forever. That's another thing that Green takes from the first movie is that music gives little hints about what's going to happen in the plot. When Laurie sings her song and then they play Don't Fear the Reaper on the radio. 
Uh, I think that's what he's doing too. So he's trying to be a little bit like Carpenter, and then he's trying to take little tricks that Carpenter used and, and plant those as well. That's uh, that's pretty much all I have. I don't have any other clues. <laughs> I think that's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. It is a lot. I'll try to recap some of this. So I think what you're saying is that Halloween ends will definitely, first of all, confirm that Michael is a supernatural force. So there won't be any ambiguity anymore. It's like they're just going to embrace the fact that he's supernatural. Yeah, I mean, I think I already did with Kills, right? The obvious last scene, and then him teleporting. Well, my question on that one is how they're going to clean up the ending of Kills, but I think we can go with the supernatural angle. Yeah, and then he teleported right behind Karen. They don't cut away, he just appears there. So how did he get in the room? She summoned him through magic. That's, that's basically it. So the window, in your mind, is that's uh, looking through and for him potentially seeing or others to be able to see the abyss part of it or in terms of accessing the shape. The mirrors thing remains an open question. Yeah. However, there is the possibility of what you're saying is that if it's a true reflection versus like the reflection on a window, like a partial reflection, that he doesn't like it because maybe that shows him his real self in, in some way. And it's also something that could be used against him as a weapon. Yeah, I think it just makes him feel guilty looking at it. I, I, he just doesn't like it. And then let's see a couple other ones. So the radio station will play a fairly important role. And then it could be an homage to the fog in terms of potentially using as a, a way to coordinate some of the activity in terms of tracking Myers. And there will be a storyline with missing children. And why are those children missing? It's either that Michael just wants some company or potentially this idea of grooming the shape. And I think where you're ultimately going is, and it's probably where they're going to go with the, because you got to find a way to continue the series, obviously. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that this shape is something that could manifest itself in somebody else and start the cycle over, basically. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think that's correct, and I think something will have to do with the red rabbit. I think something's going to go down there. There's actually a cast list. I think there's going to be a flashback. There's going to be more flashbacks. I think we're going to see oh, some really? Mulaney's. We're going to see some Mulaney's again. Goddamn Mulaney's! And uh, there's a Doctor Mathis or Mateus. He's a reference to Halloween too. Do you remember the the nurse is late to work and she went to a Halloween party. She's never going to go again. She hated it so much. Yeah, but I, th I thought, so it wasn't Dr. Mathis then who, no, it was Dr. Mixter who got the, uh, I think he got the needle in the eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, she refers to somebody like Mathis, I'm never going to go to his party again. It was lame because it was kind of, she bobbed for apples. In uh, Halloween Kills, there's the black couple that's in the... Um, oh, the, the nurse and the doctor outfit, yeah. She's complaining that her husband did not stand up to this Dr. Mathis guy. And it turns out Dr. Mass is invited to the Halloween party, but he really wanted it to be a swinger party. And he was making the moves on the nurse's wife, who's dressed up like a nurse. And she's pissed, and she wants her husband to stand up. So she's like, he finally says, I'm going to go there and punch him in the face tomorrow morning. Well, he's going to be in it, the doctor, <laughs> yeah. who likes having sex parties. So again, I think they're hinting at it. So they may throw in some dialogue that seems like it's just random dialogue, but actually it might be hinting at something coming up. So Dr. Mateus is going to be in it. I think he has a Halloween party. There's rumor that there's going to be a Halloween party that has middle-aged people in it. I don't know what that's all about yet. There's a lot of kids in this that they're casting. There's a kid named Timothy who's Donna's son. He's, he's critical and overbearing. She's age 55. Mr. Mead, a parent of a young boy, middle-class suburban, tall, four years old. Mrs. Mead, nice with kids, mother of Noah, ability to switch to a jerk on a dime. So there's something about a lot of kids going on here. And I think there's young Johnny, which I think is a code for... Michael himself, blonde hair, slight gap tooth, dark eyes, a bit small, 6 to 10 years old. Dark eyes? You mean like the devil's eyes? Yeah, like the devil's <laughs> eyes. So there's a lot of interesting uh, clues out of the cast members. There's a dead lover. We're going to see a dead lover, whoever that is. Plenty of police. 
We're going to see Willie the Kid. Can't wait to see him. And then there's somebody named Dusty Monet. Sounds like a stripper. And then there's a dude named Bar Nun. B-A-R-N-U-N. Is he a DJ? Is he working at the club? I don't know. Why would you have the name Bar Nun? Does it sound like a DJ? It sounds like a wrestler. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, there's rumor that Michael will go to the radio station and he will kill somebody in the radio station. Maybe on air. I'm just going through these cast groups and trying to figure out. Maybe it's going to be this. Maybe it's going to be that. So that's it. That's pretty much all I have as far as um, inside information and clues to where this is going. It could be completely wrong. My saying is, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. (laughs) So I'm going to stick with that. That's my saying when I predict this stuff. It's like, I could be completely wrong. You know, I have been wrong. You know, I made some predictions for when I watch a TV show and then they were wrong. But most of the time they are right. So I'm happy about that. And I do think filmmakers do try and tell you and foreshadow what's going on with symbolism and metaphor and planting seeds of ideas. And I think if you just pay attention, you'll get them enough of a basic idea if you know where this is going. And that's what I like about this new trilogy. It's kind of like Lost. You can speculate about where it's going, and it's about more than what it seems. You know what I mean? Lost has a lot of Catholic and Christian themes and a lot of themes, too. And that's what I like about this trilogy. I don't think 4, 5, or 6, or 7, or Halloween 20, I don't think they give a damn about any sort of theme or judgment or some deeper thoughts or philosophy, whereas I think this trilogy, even though it's got its flaws, Evil dies tonight. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> so stupid. Yeah, I don't think you need to say that for the 800th and seven, or 802nd time. But I do appreciate, and this is what I like about it, I do appreciate the fact that it's trying to talk about the human condition and more philosophical things, which is also why I like Prometheus, even though Prometheus has a lot of fucking stupid dumb shit in it. So I just yeah. feel like you make a great movie if you do all those things right and you don't do anything illogical and stupid that takes people out of the movie. Don't be dumb. That way we won't, we'll stop and pay attention to your philosophy and we don't have to stop thinking like, no, no fucking geologists would do that shit. Nobody would walk into Michael's house alone. That's stupid. <laughs> you know, it's like, stop doing that. Just because some guy pulls up at a gas station and says, Michael Myers from 40 years ago killed three teenagers. He's back. Who? Who? What? <laughs> that would be the actual response. What? What? Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Uh, some sister thing. You know, there was a school shooting not too long ago, or there was a mall shooting that killed 30 people. We're more horrified by real life than we are by some fictional babysitters, three of them getting killed, which is still horrible, but real life is way yes. more horrible. I mean, even the boyfriend of the babysitter says that. He's like, in the scheme of things, it's not that bad. I think we might have proven here today that you might be more of a Halloween fan than I am, possibly. (laughs) At least in terms of your ability to uh, dissect and analyze things. Yeah, I've been too much into this. Just ask my wife. Amy will be glad when this podcast is over because she'll think I've got it out of my system. Uh, Surprise, surprise. Three weeks from now, there'll be a trailer and I'll be right back here. Uh, At some point down the road, we'll we'll close loop this. We'll do a a follow-up to see how you did on your predictions because, I don't know, some of them sound pretty solid. Got to be honest. I'm in your camp, so. Yeah, we'll see. Truthfully, after the way Halloween Kills ended, I'm just like, whatever. I mean, just see where it's going to go next. Yeah, they could still fail. Green is not perfect. He clearly has uh, stumbled (laughs) quite a few times. I think he's good at the big ideas, but boy, sometimes his execution is just weak as all hell. The whole bar scene where Tommy's talking, the logic of them all coming together every Halloween to celebrate is kind of weird, even the nurse. Hey, remember that time we almost died? You, know, you guys want to get together and uh, hang out? <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like a good thing to remember every year. Yeah, there is a book called Final Girl Support Group. Maybe it's their support group. By the way, Lori is supposed to be with them that night. According to the book, she does go with them every every Halloween to that bar to commemorate. Oh, really? Yeah, to commemorate their Interesting. Survival. 
So that wasn't in the movie. Oh, there is one more scene that wasn't in the movie that is interesting. Is a lot of people like the this proves the mask is not powerful. Is that Aaron actually puts on the mask and sneaks up behind his podcasting girlfriend and scares her while he's wearing the Halloween mask, and he doesn't turn evil. So <laughs> I thought that was like a, a little interesting tidbit. Sartain puts it on briefly too right. in uh, the 2018. So yeah, yeah, he doesn't turn pe- evil. People are saying, "Oh, he turned evil." No. Plus, Sartain's shot, man. How's he dragging Michael? <laughs> Yeah, he's got shot with a rifle. How's he doing that? That scene's not great, but anyway. <laughs> There's a lot of flaws with Halloween kills that I definitely see for sure. Uh, I just like it better than four, five, and six because again, I think those are movies that thought the best way to go about doing this is to just copy the first movie and the second movie and just go with the whole family angle. You know, like I said, is uh, let's go kill my niece or let's go kill my niece's daughter, my second cousin. Then the Celtic gods have told me I'm gonna kill my whole family. It's just it's so dumb. So even though these right. movies are flawed, I at least appreciate that they're trying to talk about something similar to the tv show lost that's why i'm a fan of these and not a big fan of you know four five and six and and some of the other ones well bill i think that i what i've proven here today mainly is that if i want to talk halloween with somebody you're the right guy to bring on the podcast so yeah thank you for joining me on the podcast today yeah, we got to talk about three one of these days. That's a fun movie to talk about. I was trying to ask uh, Marcus and Colin if they wanted to do a Halloween 3. Just, so maybe maybe you and I could just do a pod on Halloween 3. That'd be fun. Yeah, sin of consumerism. Sin of consumerism. <laughs> well, but, hey, Bill, so uh, if people want to get in contact with you, how can they reach you? And what would you like to uh, promote? Uh, yeah, if they want to get a hold of me, my email is billtiller at um, gmail.com. So it's pretty easy. Uh, and why would you want to contact me? Uh, well, I'm a game designer. I've made some games, and I am working on a sequel to my Vampire Story game, which is about something, too. It's not just about vampires. And if you haven't played it, you can play it now on a new platform that can run. So it's an old game. came out in 2009, the one Dave and I worked on. It came out in 2009, but doesn't run great on old uh, new computers, except now there's a new publisher called Zoom Platform, just like Zoom, but Zoom Platform and it will take old games and create a simulator, and you can run old games on them. So if you want to play my game, A Vampire Story 1, you can go to Zoom Platform, and it'll eventually be on Steam, and I'm hoping it'll be on Stadia as well, so you can play it on devices. Or you can go to the A Vampire Story Facebook page and see it there. Uh, I'm not on Twitter, because I'm morally opposed to it. But if you want to play the game, it's on uh, Zoom Platform. Go to Zoom Platform, and you can get it there. I think it's on sale right now, too. And and I believe you're also sharing uh, art on your Instagram as well, right? Yeah, trying to as much as possible. I'll put a little bit of vampire stuff on there too when I can. But I am showing old vampire story stuff, and and when we feel it's the right time with the developers I'm working with, we'll we'll start promoting a vampire story too. So the idea is that we're making a demo, and we'll show it to publishers, and the publishers will then give us an advance to make the full game. And that's what I'm I'm hoping to do. But I also do freelance artwork. So if anybody needs freelance artwork, you know, just um, Email me and we can we can talk about it. Uh, I also made a board game that you should check out. It's called The Shivers, and it's pretty neat. It's a um, kind of a light role-playing game, adventure game, so like an old LucasArts adventure game. It takes place in a haunted house, but the stories change based on these story cards. They can completely change, and there's a bunch of different rooms that you pop up, like a pop-up card or a pop-up children's book, and you open it up set it up and it's this pop-up haunted library or it's a haunted salon or a haunted you know or a um, mad scientist lab or a graveyard and then you connect them together with a little magnet and uh, you have these little characters and you put them on there and you play them and there's a dm who's on the other side of the um, the back side of the um, the sets and he reads the story and he kind of dms for you 
There's a little bit of combat in it, but it's not like full on D and D. It's more like an adventure game where you search around and open up little sections of the pop up book, and you can find puzzles and and solutions to things, and then you can defeat whatever that particular story is. And there'll be expansion packs too that we're working on as well. And uh, so yeah, those are the two things you should check out: a vampire story and the shivers. You can sense a little theme here of things that I'm interested in: yeah. Halloween related, uh, horror related stuff, but light. It's it's for kids. I would say a vampire story is more like for uh, people like Simpsons, right? It's more like Simpson age. Yeah. Yeah, some of our jokes. It's got Dave Harris humor all over it. So if you like Dave Harris, this guy over here, you'll like a vampire story because it's, it's got his fingerprints all over it. He molested the hell out of that game. I, I sure did, yeah. All right, well, thanks for everybody for listening. I hope you found it entertaining and interesting. And thank you for having me on. It was awesome. And I'm so glad I got this out of my system. My wife would be so happy it's out of my system, too. I won't have to bug her. My son, my daughter, they won't have to hear especially my son, they won't have to hear it anymore. But you will. We'll definitely, again, have you back at some point just to uh, allow, allow us to maybe grade your predictions. Uh, but yeah. I hope everybody enjoyed our long, winding conversation <laughs> about the all things Halloween, the Halloween franchise, and in particular, Bill's attempt to do some predictions for halloween ends and attempt. i'm sure bill and i will be seeing halloween ends together in the theater when it comes out yeah. in fact i should just say that that's a requirement bill yes hopefully it'll be a good movie regardless of if your predictions land or not i really liked halloween 2018 halloween kills was a little bit of a side trip for me <laughs> yes, i'm not is. quite sure what to think about that movie it's so chapter two i think once you see ends you'll appreciate two a little bit better that's what I'm hoping. Yes, I'm hoping that Halloween Ends is not only a good movie by itself, but I hope it actually somehow makes Halloween Kills better, which will be an interesting feat if it accomplishes that. They can still blow it. That's our last word. So please don't blow it. Make yeah, a good movie. Please so, don't blow it. Don't blow it. Yeah. All right. And with that, this is the Real DMC Podcast signing off. Bye, everybody. Bye. And then there's some characterization that I don't like either. The sleazy EMT guy. Oh, bud? Yeah. Amazing grace. Come sit on my face. Don't make me cry. I need your pie. Oh, my God. Why would anybody sleep with that dude? That girl, she's annoyed with him, too, and hates his guts, but yet she still ends up in the hot tub with him. That makes no sense. Maybe he has a huge dong. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>